Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner and only corner, uh, I am your indefatigable, your ever vigilant, your last bit on the wall, your political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. That means you're listening to Fault Lines. It's still very new and it's still very weird. Um, and not just very weird, it's just, I don't know, a little awkward. Um, it's almost like, yeah, let's do this. Let's get to the headlines first. First, you guys, I hope you have had a fantastic day. Um, I hope you guys are doing okay this morning. And so let's do this. Let's get into the headlines. And we are going to go from there. We have an awesome show for today. And the topics, we're going to have Sabota joining us. CNN has done an article supposedly talking about Sputnik. Now, here's the thing. From the standpoint of the way they're looking at the media space, they're thinking in their heads, well, RT is gone. We've gained their scalp. So we need one more scalp to get. And in their case, Sputnik is that scalp. Well, what followed was one of the saddest, most pathetic pieces that you would see anybody write. A, it didn't even seem like they publicized it, like they were ashamed of it. And then the guy starts it off with nobody to basically talk to at Sputnik. So he's riding around in his car and he's like, hey, there's a Russian propaganda station on. He doesn't even know where the office is. He doesn't know where people are. Nobody wants to talk to him. And so it's just a guy in his car. It's the most ridiculous, sad, funniest thing ever. And he would, he had one person, he had Scotty um, Nail, who went to basically talk to him. Look, I don't think she should want to talk to him, but to each his own, right? She goes to talk to the guy. Now, the problem is, if you're not going to go and talk to the guy and say, I want it to be live stream, I don't want you to have any cuts, I don't want you to do any, because keep in mind, in their head, regardless of what they tell you, their framing is, we are trying to put a knife in this particular organization. We don't consider them equals. We think they're this. We think they're that. We are functioning in the interest of state. And in functioning in the interest of state, we need to get rid of these alternate point of view and opinions. Meaning, the news organization that is supposed to be doing the job of giving a contextual view of the world, but instead, based on NBC News, have been lying flagrantly for the interests of the White House. And understand the gravity of that, because the interest of the White House in this very specific situation is ratcheting up a war. These guys are now invoking things like nuclear weapons. I mean, they're even talking about Finland and Sweden trying to join when Ukraine in and of itself was a provocation because it was trying to join. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And so it's like where media is supposed to be kind of giving the public a real, genuine worldview perspective where they can contextually balance these things against their needs versus the things that they want. They don't do that. They don't do that. And that very specific situation, their thought is, we need to get rid of this alternate point of view. It challenges our point of view. It makes us insecure about our point of view. And when people see that, maybe people will realize, hey, their point of view seems to be more right than these other news people's point of view. The stelters of the world that turns around and says, that, that doesn't look like me. I don't think that's me. And then Seltzer brings the guy on and the guy basically says, yeah, you're just like them. What? What What do you mean? Yes, Seltzer. You brought me on and I'm telling you I'm an expert. You're a propagandist also. It's the weirdest thing ever. I guess the point that I'm making here in this very um, specific case is this news organization is basically trying to eliminate another news organization. And it's doing so purely in some way in the interest of state because they don't want competing narrative to their story. It's, look, it's the world that we're in, right? 
But ultimately, Scotty is going to come and she's going to be talking about it. And we also have Joe Siegel. And he's going to be talking about these kind of increase in medical prices. And because Joe Siegel was instrumental in helping getting the Affordable Care Act passed, he knows what goes on behind the scenes as that stuff happens. So let's do this. Let's get to your headlines. In the news, Florida became the latest U.S. state to sharply restrict abortions after Governor Ron DeSantis signed a 15-week ban on the law on Thursday. Quote, we are here today to protect life, unquote, DeSantis said at Nation de Fe Kissimmee on Thursday. Quote, we are here today to defend those who can't defend themselves, unquote. The bill slashes the latest date at which women can obtain abortion to by nine weeks, from 24 weeks to 15 weeks. The only exceptions are if the abortion is necessary to save the mother's life, prevent serious injury to the mother, and the fetus as a fatal abnormality. If you were bright, you would save this until the midterms. If you are bright, you, you guys will save this until the midterms. We'll see. A San Francisco Chronicle investigation has revealed that lawmakers and staffers close to Senator Dianne Feinstein are fearing that she is losing her mental faculties raising concerns that the lawmaker is unable to effectively carry out the responsibilities of her job. The lawmakers and the staffers would only speak to the Chronicle on condition of anonymity, but they said of the four senators they spoke to, three are Democrats. Everyone who expressed concerns said doing so was painful because they respect her for what she'd done in her career. Think about that. We were talking, well, Farron and I, about how many times these people are in Congress and they are so out of touch. And in being out of touch, it's like, you're supposed to be able to represent your constituency. And A, from a class distinction, you're out of touch. And honestly, from even an age distinction and the things that the people want, that is the base of your party, you're out of touch. Well, add one more on the power for Diane Feinstein and mentally, cognitively, apparently not all together there. And nobody wants to tell the person who's not all together there that is supposed to be representing a large number of people that maybe she shouldn't actually be there to represent those people if she is not all together there. The job is to represent your constituents, not just to have something where somebody could be in an old folks home in Congress where they get a bunch of money to just be, you know, kind of there, just dazed out. Whereas her constituents don't get the things that they need accomplished because that person is sitting there and nobody wants to basically tell them to go home, go home, go eat applesauce, <laughs> go do something else. But let's keep going. The Russian Ministry of Defense announced on Thursday that the missile cruiser Moskva had sunk in the Black Sea. Quote, during the towing of the Moskva cruiser at the port of destination, the ship lost its balance due to damage to the hull received during the fire following the detonation of ammunition. The ship sank in the stormy sea, unquote, the ministry said in a statement. Now, this is going into the war stuff, right? This fog of war. There are multiple things that are coming out on this. In one case, there is Ukraine saying, in this kind of weird way, hey, we hit that, we did that, we, we shot that, we, not, we, we sunk that. Russia says, no, this was a fire that basically caught on board, the ammunition apparently went off, etc. So they're basically two different stories. Here's the catch. If Ukraine is right, then how did they do that? And if they were using something, let's say from a foreign source, because, of course, Britain, U.S., all of these countries have been dumping more and more weapons into these places. The United States is trying to get more sophisticated weapon systems in. Is it possible that they were using a harpoon missile or something like that from either the U.K. or the United States to hit that boat, which created this kind of new precedent and capability? And what does it mean 
if indeed that's true. Because think about, we'll come back to it. It's, it's a big deal. That's the point that I'm making. We're getting to this point where things have been escalating to the degree where you have started to add armaments that may potentially change our context on the battlefield, which means that for the longest time when we didn't necessarily consider you belligerents, we will start doing so. This is escalating. And this is what I mean when I say these people get into these things, these positions where they can't back away from, where they get wrapped into it so much that they lock themselves in to a particular policy that is not in the best interest of the world, not in the best interest of the constituents, and no, not even in their own best interest. Let's keep going. Israel carried out airstrikes in the suburbs of Damascus on Thursday, Syria's state news agency signed and reported. According to the news agency report, explosions were heard in the sky in the western part of the city. The outlet, citing sources in the military, stated that Israeli jets carried out, quote, an air aggression, unquote, from the north of occupied Golan Heights. And the targets of the airstrike were situated in the western suburbs of Damascus. Let's keep going. In tech news, hour after public hours after publicly making a bid to buy Twitter outright for $41.3 billion and days after becoming its largest stockholder, Elon Musk sat down for a long-form interview during TED 2022 conference in Vancouver, where he explained his vision for the social media company. Musk called Twitter a town square, and having free speech in that square is important for civilization's survival. Though he emphasized that Twitter, like all public forums, are beholden to the laws of the country that they operate out of. Calling for direct violence on someone would not get a free pass on Elon Musk's Twitter, but most other forms of speech would. Wow. Wow. Look, I've said it before. If you are in a situation as a civilization, or as a country, or as a society, that you call yourself a democracy, and you have a billionaire that because of his ideological disposition, that he wants a free speech square, and that people are pushing back against him because they don't want him to have a free speech ban. Now, again, it's a free speech thing for all of people, meaning Twitter doesn't ban this thing because it doesn't like it. It doesn't ban that government because it doesn't like what it's saying. It doesn't ban that other government because it's saying something that the United States doesn't particularly like. It's not doing that. It's putting it out and letting people be adults to come to a particular conclusion. Yes, in doing so, there's going to be some stuff that people get wrapped into, but people get wrapped into that stuff anyway. At the end of the day, should Twitter be this restrictive space? And let's get back to the whole platform argument also. Is it a platform or is it a publisher? And how much does it have to be able to get rid of certain information that it just doesn't like for political reasons before it actually indeed is considered a publisher? What Elon Musk is basically saying, I want it to be a platform, period. I want it to be a forum. People make their say. And this gets the whole rumble conversation too. Because CNN, not only were they trying to basically get the FCC to look into this, meaning the fact that we exist, they were also pushing an attacks to Rumble to try to get Rumble to get rid of the show. Rumble told them to kick rocks and basically to go F themselves. The FCC basically said the same thing, saying we have free speech in this country. It's a First Amendment. They're not doing anything to break the law. Leave them to their devices. Basically, yes, go kick rocks. But the fact that they were willing to do it is just problematic. The point that I'm making here is Elon Musk, whatever you want to think of him, is right. A democracy requires this level of debate, debate, conversation, and yeah, a free exchange of ideas. And the reason that the First Amendment is there first, because it was understood that a power structure would not necessarily want an alternate point of view that would challenge the power structure. You need to have those people to have the ability to talk for it to be an actual representative government. How can you have a representative government if the various people are represented because you don't allow that particular speech, that conversation to take place? Not, not just that. What happens when the minority point of view is the point of view? 
It just so happens to be correct. And the larger point of view just wants to shut it up because it doesn't like what it's saying, not because it's not true. It is vitally important. And for whatever particular reason, people just kind of forget that that's the First Amendment. Okay, fair enough. Blue-collar billionaire to the rescue. Like I said, if a billionaire is the one that's going to save us, we're already lost. And in business news, mortgage rates have risen 2% since the start of the year, pushing them higher than 5% for the first time in 11 years. That combined with record high home prices are making it harder than ever for Americans buy their first home. Just a year after interest rates were 3.4% or 0.4%, there was an even lower in 2020. But in an attempt to bring housing prices down and fight inflation by making borrowing more difficult, the Federal Reserve have been gradually increasing interest rates. Yes, and the financial sectors have been looking at them like, you guys are not being serious. How are you just creating this kind of 0.5 interest rate height or 0.5? Let's keep going. And the crazy story for today, a Tennessee state senator is under fire for using Adolf Hitler as an example of hope and inspiration during a speech on Wednesday. The state senator, Frank Neasley, Republican, of course, made the remarks on the Senate floor during the debate on a bill to make camping and soliciting along state highways for exit ramps a misdemeanor. Nicely said that he was going to give his fellow lawmakers a history lesson, quote unquote, adding that in 1910, Hitler took to the streets and practiced his oratory and the people skills. Quote, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. So for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced oratory and his body language and how to connect with the masses and then to lead life that got him into the history books, he said. Quote, so a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this, these homeless camps and have a productive life or in Hitler's case, a very unproductive life. Unquote, he continued, I support this bill. I support this bill. Look, here's the thing. Hitler's life was productive. It was just productive in murdering a lot of people. It depends on your objective, right? Just because it was a horrible, horrible thing doesn't necessarily mean you weren't productive in doing a really horrible, horrible thing. But are there no other excuses or examples to use in that case to show how homeless can, you know, transition into out of homeless in these kind of weird cases? There's no other case for you to use except for Hitler? Is that where you're going? Meaning your ability to try to show... (laughs) That's your example, Hitler? Like, Hitler is not a good example in a normal circumstances just because he's such an oddball in an anomaly thing. But you're using that for this weird homeless thing. Jeez. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. And it ended, I support this bill. I support this bill. Because of Hitler. Because of Hitler. In holiday news, we have Good Friday. What's so good about it? Bengali New Year. We have National Titanic Remembrance Day. And National Rubber Eraser Day. That was the greatest invention ever, the ability to erase a mistake. Um, on this day in history, in 1947, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, like the speed barrier or any other barrier, I suppose. In 1912, the Titanic sinks. The unsinkable ship sinks. Unsinkable ship. In 2013, three people killed, hundreds injured in the Boston Ma- Ma- Marathon bombing. Wow, I remember that. In 1865, Abraham Lincoln dies from a bullet wound after being shot by a Confederate sympathizer and actor. John Wilkes Booth. And in 1959, Miguel Castro visits the United States for the very first time. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. So let's take a quick break. Um, There's another headline that I thought was just absolutely funny before I take this break. Um, This is Axios. Blinken apologized to UAE Crown Prince for delayed response to Houthi attacks. 
And the article is kind of funny because it's almost like Saudi Arabia was like, Lincoln, I need you to get butt naked. Okay, how butt naked do you need me to get? The tidy whities also. That's what I need. Meaning these guys felt some kind of way about the way that the United States had basically been behaving. And so it was this famous thing that when the U.S. called, Saudi Arabia didn't necessarily pick up the phone when they needed you, um, many of these other countries, like in the OPEC nations, they didn't necessarily increase gas. And so this is basically a come to Jesus tour. <laughs> That's what this is. Blinken is going back and apologizing deeply um, and, and, you know, leaving his dignity at the door in this very specific situation. But let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment with the Soapbox segment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner and only corner, um, I am your indefatigable, your ever vigilant, your last bit on the wall, your political analyst, Jamal Thomas. That means you're listening to fault lines. We're going to have to work that out. <laughs> it's, look, guys, it's still very new and it's still very weird um and not just very weird it's just i don't know a little awkward um it's almost like yeah let's do this let's get to the headlines first first you guys i hope you have had a fantastic day um i hope you guys are doing okay this morning and so let's do this let's get into the headlines and we are going to go from there we have an awesome show for today and the topics we're going to have Saboda joining us cnn has done an article supposedly talking about Sputnik. Now, here's the thing. From the standpoint of the way they're looking at the media space, they're thinking in their heads, well, RT is gone. We've gained their scalp. So we need one more scalp to get. And in their case, Sputnik is that scalp. Well, what followed was one of the saddest, most pathetic pieces that you would see anybody write. A, it didn't even seem like they publicized it, like they were ashamed of it. And then the guy starts it off with nobody to basically talk to at Sputnik. So he's riding around in his car and he's like, hey, there's a Russian propaganda station on. He doesn't even know where the office is. He doesn't know where people are. Nobody wants to talk to him. And so it's just a guy in his car. It's the most ridiculous, sad, funniest thing ever. And he would, he had one person, he had Scotty um, Nail, who went to basically talk to him. <sighs> Look, I don't think she should want to talk to him, but to each his own, right? She goes to talk to the guy. Now, the problem is, if you're not going to go and talk to the guy and say, I want it to be live stream, I don't want you to have any cuts, I don't want you to do any, because keep in mind, in their head, regardless of what they tell you, their framing is, we are trying to put a knife in this particular organization, we don't consider them equals, we think they're this, we think they're that, we are functioning in the interest of state, and in functioning in the interest of state, we need to get rid of these alternate point of view and opinions, meaning, the news organization that is supposed to be doing the job of giving a contextual view of the world, but instead, based on NBC News, have been lying flagrantly for the interests of the White House. And understand the gravity of that, because the interest of the White House in this very specific situation is ratcheting up a war. These guys are now invoking things like nuclear weapons. I mean, they're even talking about Finland and Sweden trying to join when Ukraine in and of itself was a provocation because it was trying to join. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And so it's like where media is supposed to be kind of 
giving the public a real, genuine worldview perspective where they can contextually balance these things against their needs versus the things that they want. They don't do that. They don't do that. In that very specific situation, their thought is, we need to get rid of this alternate point of view. It challenges our point of view. It makes us insecure about our point of view. And when people see that, maybe people will realize, hey, their point of view seems to be more right than these other news people's point of view. The stelters of the world that turns around and says, that, that doesn't look like me. I don't think that's me. And then Seltzer brings the guy on and the guy basically says, yeah, you're just like them. What? What, what do you mean? Yes, Stelter. You brought me on and I'm telling you I'm an expert. You're a propagandist also. It's the weirdest thing ever. I guess the point that I'm making here in this very um, specific case is this news organization is basically trying to eliminate another news organization and is doing so purely in some way in the interests of state because they don't want a competing narrative to their story. It's, look, it's the world that we're in, right? But ultimately, Scotty is going to come and she's going to be talking about it. And we also have Joe Siegel. And he's going to be talking about these kind of increase in medical prices. And because Joe Siegel was instrumental in helping getting the Affordable Care Act passed, he knows what goes on behind the scenes as that stuff happens. So let's do this. Let's get to your headlines. In the news, Florida became the latest U.S. state to sharply restrict abortions after Governor Ron DeSantis signed a 15-week ban on the law on Thursday. Quote, we are here today to protect life. Unquote, DeSantis said at Nation de Fe Kissimmee on Thursday, quote, we are here today to defend those who can't defend themselves, unquote. The bill slashes the latest date at which women can obtain abortion to by nine weeks from 24 weeks to 15 weeks. The only exceptions are if the abortion is necessary to save the mother's life, prevent serious injury to the mother, and the fetus has a fatal abnormality. If you were bright, you would save this until the midterms. If you're bright, you, you guys will save this until the midterms. We'll see. A San Francisco Chronicle investigation has revealed that lawmakers and staffers close to Senator Dianne Feinstein are fearing that she is losing her mental faculties, raising concerns that the lawmaker is unable to effectively carry out the responsibilities of her job. The lawmakers and the staffers would only speak to the Chronicle on condition of anonymity, but they said of the four senators they spoke to, three are Democrats, Everyone who expressed concerns said doing so was painful because they respect her for what she'd done in her career. Think about that. We were talking, well, Vern and I, about how many times these people are in Congress and they are so out of touch. And in being out of touch, it's like you're supposed to be able to represent your constituency. And A, from a class distinction, you're out of touch. And honestly, from even an age distinction and the things that the people want, that is the base of your party. You're out of touch. Well, add one more on the power for Dianne Feinstein and mentally, cognitively, apparently not all together there. And nobody wants to tell the person who's not all together there that is supposed to be representing a large number of people that maybe she shouldn't actually be there to represent those people if she is not all together there. The job is to represent your constituents, not just to have something where somebody could be in an old folks home in Congress where they get a bunch of money to just be, you know, kind of there and dazed out, whereas her constituents don't get the things that they need accomplished because that person is sitting there and nobody wants to basically tell them to go home, go home, go eat applesauce, <laughs> go do something else. But let's keep going. The Russian Ministry of Defense announced on Thursday that the missile cruise, cruiser Moskva had sunk in the Black Sea. Quote, during the towing of the Moskva cruiser, at the port of destination, the ship lost its balance due to damage to the hull received during the fire following the detonation of ammunition. 
The ship sank in the stormy sea, unquote, the ministry said in a statement. Now, this is going into the war stuff, right? This fog of war. There are multiple things that are coming out on this. In one case, there is Ukraine saying in this kind of weird way, hey, we hit that. We did that. We, we shot that. We, not, we, we sunk that. Russia says, no, this was a fire that basically caught on board. The ammunition apparently went off, et cetera. So they're basically two different stories. Here's the catch. If Ukraine is right, then how do they do that? And if they were using something, let's say, from a foreign source, because, of course, Britain, U.S., all of these countries have been dumping more and more weapons into these places. The United States is trying to get more sophisticated weapon systems in. Is it possible that they were using a harpoon missile or something like that from either the U.K. or the United States to hit that boat, which created this kind of new precedent and capability? And what does it mean if, indeed, that's true? Because think about, we'll come back to it. It's, it's a big deal. That's the point that I'm making. We're getting to this point where things have been escalating to the degree where you have started to add armaments that may potentially change our context on the battlefield, which means that for the longest time when we didn't necessarily consider you belligerents, we will start doing so. This is escalating. And this is what I mean when I say these people get into these things, these positions where they can't back away from, where they get wrapped into it so much that they lock themselves in to a particular policy that is not in the best interest of the world, not in the best interest of the constituents, and no, not even in their own best interest. Let's keep going. Israel carried out airstrikes in the suburbs of Damascus on Thursday, Syria's state news agency signed a reported. According to the news agency report, explosions were heard in the sky in the western part of the city. The outlet, citing sources in the military, stated that Israeli jets carried out, quote, an air aggression, unquote, from the north of occupied Golan Heights. And the targets of the airstrike were situated in the western suburbs of Damascus. Let's keep going. In tech news, hour after public hours after publicly making a bid to buy Twitter outright for $41.3 billion and days after becoming its largest stockholder, Elon Musk sat down for a long-form interview during TED 2022 conference in Vancouver, where he explained his vision for the social media company. Musk called Twitter a town square and having Free speech in that square is important for civilization's survival. Though he emphasized that Twitter, like all public forums, are beholden to the laws of the country that they operate out of. Calling for direct violence on someone would not get a free pass on Elon Musk's Twitter, but most other forms of speech would. Wow. Wow. Look, I've said it before. If you are in a situation as a civilization, or as a country, or as a society, that you call yourself a democracy, and you have a billionaire that because of his ideological disposition that he wants a free speech square and that people are pushing back against him because they don't want him to have a free speech spare. Now, again, it's a free speech thing for all of people, meaning Twitter doesn't ban this thing because it doesn't like it. It doesn't ban that government because it doesn't like what it's saying. It doesn't ban that other government because it's saying something that the United States doesn't particularly like. It's not doing that. It's putting it out and letting people be adults to come to a particular conclusion. Yes. In doing so, there's going to be some stuff that people get wrapped into, but people get wrapped into that stuff anyway. At the end of the day, should Twitter be this restrictive space? And let's get back to the whole platform argument also. Is it a platform or is it a publisher? And how much does it have to be able to get rid of certain information that it just doesn't like for political reasons before it actually indeed is considered a publisher? What Elon Musk is basically saying, I want it to be a platform, period. I want it to be a forum. People make their say. And this gets to the whole rumble conversation, too, because CNN 
not only were they trying to basically get the FCC to look into this, meaning the fact that we exist, they were also pushing an attacks to Rumble to try to get Rumble to get rid of the show. Rumble told them to kick rocks and basically to go F themselves. The FCC basically said the same thing, saying we have free speech in this country. It's a First Amendment. They're not doing anything to break the law. Leave them to their devices. Basically, yes, go kick rocks. But the fact that they were willing to do it is just problematic. The point that I'm making here is Elon Musk, whatever you want to think of him, is right. A democracy requires this level of debate, debate, conversation, and yeah, a free exchange of ideas. And the reason that the First Amendment is there first, because it was understood that a power structure would not necessarily want an alternate point of view that would challenge the power structure. You need to have those people to have the ability to talk for it to be an actual representative government. How can you have a representative government if the various people aren't represented? Because you don't allow that particular speech, that conversation to take place. Not, not just that. What happens when the minority point of view is the point of view that just so happens to be correct? And the larger point of view just wants to shut it up because it doesn't like what it's saying, not because it's not true. It is vitally important. And for whatever particular reason, people just kind of forget that that's the First Amendment. Okay, fair enough. Blue-collar billionaire to the rescue. Like I said, if a billionaire is the one that's going to save us, we already lost. And in business news, mortgage rates have risen 2% since the start of the year, pushing them higher than 5% for the first time in 11 years. That combined with record high home prices are making it harder than ever for Americans buy their first home. Just a year after interest rates were 3.4% or 0.4%, there was an even lower in 2020. But in an attempt to bring housing prices down and fight inflation by making borrowing more difficult, the Federal Reserve have been gradually increasing interest rates. Yes. And the financial sectors have been looking at them like, you guys are not being serious. How are you just creating this kind of 0.5 interest rate height or 0.25? Let's keep going. And the crazy story for today, a Tennessee state senator is under fire for using Adolf Hitler as an example of hope and inspiration during a speech on Wednesday. The state senator, Frank Neasley, Republican, of course, made the remarks on the Senate floor during the debate on a bill to make camping and soliciting along state highways for exit ramps a misdemeanor. Nicely said that he was going to give his fellow lawmakers a history lesson, quote unquote, adding that in 1910, Hitler took to the streets and practiced his oratory and the people skills. Quote, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. So for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced oratory and his body language and how to connect with the masses and then to lead life that got him into the history books. He said, quote, so a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this these homeless camps and have a productive life, or in Hitler's case, a very unproductive life, unquote. He continued, I support this bill. I support this bill. Look, here's the thing. Hitler's life was productive. It was just productive in murdering a lot of people. It depends on your objective, right? Just because it was a horrible, horrible thing doesn't necessarily mean you weren't productive in doing a really horrible, horrible thing. But are there no other excuses or examples to use in that case to show how homeless can, you know, transition into out of homeless in these kind of weird cases. There's no other case for you to use except for Hitler. Is that where you're going? Meaning your ability to try to show. <laughs> That's your example, Hitler. Like Hitler is not a good example in a normal circumstances just because he's such an oddball in, in an anomaly thing. But you're using that for this weird homeless thing. Jeez. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. And it ended, I support this bill. I support this bill. Because of Hitler. Because of Hitler. In holiday news, we have Good Friday. What's so good about it? Bengali New Year. 
We have National Titanic Remembrance Day and National Rubber Eraser Day. That was the greatest invention ever, the ability to erase a mistake. Um, on this day in history, in 1947, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, like the speed barrier or any other barrier, I suppose. In 1912, the Titanic sinks. The unsinkable ship sinks. Unsinkable ship. In 2013, three people killed, hundreds injured in the Boston Ma Ma Marathon bombing. Wow, I remember that. In 1865, Abraham Lincoln dies from a bullet wound after being shot by a Confederate sympathizer and actor, John Wilkes Booth. And in 1959, Miguel Castro visits the United States for the very first time. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. So let's take a quick break. Um, there's another headline that I thought was just absolutely funny before I take this break. Um, this is Axios. Blinken apologized to UAE Crown Prince for delayed response to Houthi attacks. And the article is kind of funny because it's almost like Saudi Arabia was like, Blinken, I need you to get butt naked. Okay, how butt naked do you need me to get? The tidy whities also. That's what I need. Meaning these guys felt some kind of way about the way that the United States have basically been behaving. And so it was this famous thing that when the U.S. called, Saudi Arabia didn't necessarily pick up the phone when they needed you, um, many of these other countries, like in the OPEC nations, they didn't necessarily increase gas. And so this is basically a come to Jesus tour. <laughs> That's what this is. Blinken is going back and apologizing deeply um, and, and, you know, leaving his dignity at the door in this very specific situation. But let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment with the Soapbox segment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm My name is Jamal Thomas. Let's bring in our guest for today. We have the one and only Mark Sloboda. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. And like I said, a voice of reason. Mark, welcome on, man. How you doing this morning? Tomorrow, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. It's always an honor and a pleasure to have you. Like I said, you're one of my favorite guests. And I always appreciate these conversations because you always teach me something that I don't necessarily know. And you allow me to kind of bounce my information against your own. So there's a lot of things that seem, oops, oh, thank you. There seems to be a lot of things that are going on. Um, so. We, I have been on the show saying for weeks that the battle is taking place in the East. They were showing Zelensky on the green screen. Now they agree that the battle is taking place in the East. I made the point that Maripol is falling and that it was basically being encircled in this kind of cauldron. They were running out of materials and everything else. Now the Western media owns up to it. And even as the Azov Battalion members basically saying, we feel betrayed. We feel like we've been abandoned, et cetera, et cetera. Just, just you know, angry, et cetera, at basically their annihilation. Um, and now we found out that Russians have basically taken, or the military, let's say that, I think the Chechens specifically, have taken the Azov Steel Factory. Um, one of the big things that basically took place had to do with the missile strike or the ammunition thing for the boat. And there are two stories that are coming out. Which one is more correct? First, is there anything you want to add to anything that I just said there, just to kind of give this kind of context as we step into it? And I definitely want to get to the boat thing, because I find that to be a big, big deal if the way I'm thinking about it is correct. So what are your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, uh, so I, I think that uh, Mariupol uh, has definitely been liberated um, there for all intents and purposes. There still are Azov 
um, and reportedly some foreign guests with them. Uh, uh, some, I, I believe there are some holdouts within the steel factory and the network of tunnels uh, underneath it. The, uh, the steel factory there is essentially a city within a city. Um, it was built during Soviet times. It has uh, several underground levels. Um, uh, and uh, presumably with enough food and ammunition and water, which it's not exactly clear uh, that this neo-Nazi death squad and their presumed foreign guests have, um, they could hold out for some time there. It would be rather difficult to root them out. But uh, from what I have heard, luckily enough, uh, they're not going to have a problem at all having enough water. Uh, in fact, they're going to have a surfeit of water very soon because Russia intends to just flood the tunnels and have, well, have done, uh, have done, have done with. Yeah, so, that's uh, you'll notice that uh, Azov uh, last week tried playing the, oh, the evil Russian orcs are using chemical weapons against us poor, innocent, defenseless neo-Nazi death squad. And, um, and even even the the Pentagon and the uh, uh, regime in Kiev uh, couldn't back them up, couldn't and wouldn't back them up on that claim. Um, the the evidently the the extent of this, uh, according to their their founder Andrei Boletsky, uh, who uh, you know when he founded Azov, he said that the national idea of Ukraine must be to lead the crusade for the white race. So let's let's just leave that there and say that yes, they are indeed neo Nazis. <laughs> right. Yes. He complained that the extent of the chemical weapon damage uh, that uh, three of the Azov uh, neo Nazis were having uh, headaches and and uh, some sneezing problems. So I mean, <laughs> they had to be a chemical weapon attack. <laughs> Their allergies got bad, and it was like, <laughs> yeah, let's let's keep this story in mind in future claims of convenient weapons of mass and destruction uh, attacks going forward into the future. I think even the U.S. was not willing to waste that card on on Azov neo-Nazis. <laughs> right. But, right. Uh, yeah, that problem is essentially, and Russia has already begun to move forces that were in, Mar you know, in and around Mariupol uh, to Kherson and other uh, and north uh, into the uh, Donbass cauldron area because they're simply not needed in Mariupol anymore. So I think that is something that is essentially tied down. So that's basically adding a new, more force to the Donbass region and those republics, which look at there, the cauldron was already being created. That just makes it that much more, um, put that much more emphasis on it. One of the claims that came out yesterday had to do with the helicopter strike on the border town. Now, Russian ministry basically said that Ukraine attacked the border towns. And of course, they were apoplectic over that. And their response is, we will escalate attacks on Kiev, basically the brain trust of Kiev, if this continues. What is going on with that? Could you explain that for us? So, uh, yeah, uh, we, we, this is probably the, at least the second successful raid. Uh, with attack helicopters, which are uh, f flown low uh, to avoid uh, radar and missile defense. They weren't entirely uh, able to evade it on, on the way back, uh, evidently. Uh, one of Russia's uh, uh, air defense units, S-400 air defense units, took uh, one of the helicopters down, despite how low they were flying. Uh, but um, they, they attacked uh, six strikes on residential buildings, 
uh, six houses were damaged, seven people injured, uh, and so on. Uh, this is, you know, uh, it's fair. Uh, you know, the, the, the country, uh, it definitely, the two, yeah, it's, uh, it's a state of conflict between, uh, the regime in Kiev and Russia. And, uh, you know, um, you can certainly argue, uh, it, it, there certainly needs to be an investigation conducted on whether there was, uh, any legitimate military target, um, in this border village of Klimova in Bryansk, uh, if from the pictures I have seen, there does not appear to be any uh, legitimate military target. Uh, so that will have to go on the list to be investigated for Kiev regime war crimes. Um, if, if there was no clear military target, um, if there, which it does not appear there to be yeah, one, but other than that, town. it's, yeah, yeah, it's basically a pin brick strike, right? A, a, uh, you know, to show that they they still have the ability to strike back, even if it's against little border villages in a, a rather poor little uh, border town. Um, but um, you know, if if th that is the extent of of the offensive, you know, capability is these pinpick strikes. Um, now, uh, the Kiev regime is claiming that they hit the Moskva cruiser in the Black Sea. Uh, with two Neptune uh, uh, surface, uh, their their anti-ship missiles, surface-to-sea missiles. Um, supposedly, uh, the Kiev regime only has one battery of these. Um, I'm rather surprised it is still functioning. And uh, the, the Moskva was damaged and later sunk in the attempt to sew it back to Sevastopol. This is a rather old ship. Um, it was laid down actually in... Uh, uh, what is now Ukraine in uh, in Nikolaevsk in the um, Soviet Union because that's where the big uh, Soviet Union shipyards were. Um, so it, it's fairly old. It had it, it was actually in need of another updated modernization, but it was a significant ship. It was the capital of the Black Sea Fleet. It is certainly a not immaterial damage. It's certainly not going to change the course of the war. It played very little role in this. Supposedly, it was taking, it was uh, involved in taking down uh, several um, Turkish uh, NATO-built Bayraktar combat drones, uh, and and that was used as a distraction to launch these missiles at it. That is the, the story that's being told. Now. I am quite sure from what happened that it was indeed struck by missiles. That seems pretty clear. And they detonated the arm supply on the ship and the damage was so extensive. I have not heard about any crew losses yet. How many? There's some, a complement of 500 aboard. They say that uh, the crew was evacuated to other ships, uh, but I am sure that there were some some casualties. You don't have a fire of that scale on a ship with an arms depot going up without some casualties. Uh, so this is a big symbolic victory, certainly, uh, for Kiev to show that they can strike back. But my question is, is were these Nept right there? It's that. Because that's uh, like that's important as a question. I mean, is this a situation where they got weapons from, let's say, the UK or Britain? And was able to hit that ship. Yeah, the, the the United Kingdom promised actually before the conflict started, right? Several months before that, they were going to deliver Harpoon anti-ship missiles mm -hmm. uh, to the Kiev regime. And so I think they're why the Russian government has been so mum on the exact cause of this 
that has led to no end of, of starky memes and such online is they are attempting to determine whether this was, in fact, a Ukrainian Neptune anti-ship missile, which uh, the Kiev regime did not have very many of uh, one battery of going into this conflict. And I, again, like I would be surprised if they weren't one of the first things targeted or if these were some foreign missiles like the British Harpoon, which would certainly constitute escalation. <laughs> yes, that's an understatement. I mean, because part of my monologue was pointing that out. Like if you've, if you're, if the weapons that you're giving them is changing the calculus on the battlefield in a way that is increasing casualties, is increasing the propensity for you to be able to hit certain armaments and whatnot, then you are belligerent at that point. You have to almost be considered. Now, whether they would say it or not is something else. Meaning, because from my standpoint, it's very possible that they know, but they will not say for the same reason that they know that they're British fighters and American, I'm not going to say fighters, but let's say special forces or whatever, in order to maybe help with weapons transfers. Well, I, I will say foreign guests until we know exactly what they are. One, one British mercenary who has actually long been fighting in Donbass against the, for the Kiev regime against the people of Donbass. No, no innocent there. He's actually been fighting for seven years. Uh, he was captured after throwing the figure, uh, finger to the camera several weeks ago and promising he would never surrender to Putin surrendered to Putin, I guess, <laughs> or his representative, right, right? You know, you know I, I think he's lucky that he was taken alive. Let me just say that I have every confidence that he will be treated just as well as the Kiev regime's neo-Nazi death squads have been treating Russian POWs. Oh, he should be fine then. He should be fine then. He should be, he should be perfectly fine then. Because there, because Mark, there's no Nazis. There are no Nazis in Ukraine, so he should be perfectly fine. I would, I would like to say that uh, actually he will probably be, uh, <laughs> perhaps uh, he will be treated much better. He, I, he, he will not be tortured, shot in the knees, and led to bleed out to death, and and, and so on, as they have posted themselves of of the war crimes that they're perpetrating against uh, Russian uh, and Donbas uh, prisoners of war. By the way, when so. Linsky was asked about that. He just said they are what they are. It's like, what do you mean they are? They what are what they are. That's a great. I, you know, I think that should go on Zelensky's tombstone whenever he meets. I, I, I. They are. He is. He was what he was. He was what he was. <laughs> it was what he was. Like to, I'd like to get that to go on there. But, um, you know, uh, you know where all of this is is going, is that um, the Russian government has has responded to to this series and uh, certainly the the sinking of the moskva is a big symbolic at least setback right it is it is um and uh, you know these continuing pinprick uh attacks across the border yeah they demonstrate that you know that that, that there's still fighting spirit uh you know at least of, of Zelensky and his uh you know a cadre and so on but um what it has led to is that russia has responded that they intend to target uh, decision-making centers, i.e. what the U.S. would call command and control, uh, and regularly targets in warfare, i.e. I. political targets, right, which the U.S., you know, certainly in Iraq and Libya and Syria, they were regarded as legitimate targets. Yeah, they had no issue going after them. Russia has evidently avoided hitting those so far uh, in this. And my big response to that was, why? Because they wanted to have a government to negotiate with. Meaning, like, if you're dealing with if you're dealing with the government and you're not trying to do like the U.S. did in Iraq, where you're just trying to slaughter the place, and you basically you have a 
limited mission that you want to accomplish. And you look at the government, you say, I need that government to exist. And if Zelensky gets killed, are we going to be able to have any kind of negotiation going forward? It's that. That's the issue. At least that's my thought. I think it's quite clear that there is. I think it's quite clear that there are no negotiations at this point, And everyone has basically admitted that. So the kid gloves should come off. And uh, if they are making, uh, you know, if they are commanding control of their decision making, then certainly the U.S. has set the president uh, in its many wars. Wars, uh, invasions, and occupations that they are legitimate targets, uh, and they are should now be declared legitimate targets. And there were indeed an increase in apparent caliber cruise missile strikes uh, in Kiev and elsewhere uh, in the country last night. Yeah, this was basically the retaliation to that particular strike. I mean, what's interesting to me is, let's say that for the moment those missiles were harpoons, and let's say Russia does escalate. It's attacks, like you said, all of those attacks that were taking place in Kiev. I was seeing the reports on it coming out myself. Um, if right here, I'm going to read this. This is zero hedge. It says assertion was made. Uh, where is it? Where is it? I get people don't want to touch this, but I'm fascinated by this because this is a big, big deal. It says a French journalist who returned with from Ukraine after arriving with volunteer fighters told broadcasters C News that Americans are directly in charge of the war on the ground. Now this doesn't mean fighters, right? I mean, like I didn't take it to mean fighters per se. I just took it to mean kind of communications, um, materials, getting weapons from point A to point B. So I, I'm trying to give the best spin on this as possible because the ramifications are just so awesome if I'm wrong in regards to the spin. And so he even goes further. He says the international correspondent, um, Jorge Mandelbrot, he says, quote, I had to surprise, and so did they, to discover that to be able to enter the Ukrainian army, well, it's the Americans who are in charge. And then he goes further. He said, and who's in charge? It's the Americans. I saw it with my own eyes. I thought I was in the international brigades. I found myself facing the Pentagon. All right. So let's say those attacks are hitting those nerve centers because let's say Ukraine continues to do what they've been doing. Are you concerned that some of the people that may be there may be what Russia is calling mercenaries or what this guy is calling, let's say, people who are basically somehow helping the war effort, but it's part of either U.S. or U.K.? Like that seems to be so fraught with problems. Yeah, we we've had there there have been former French intelligence officials that have uh, come out and said that uh, actually Western countries already have special forces have have had them there on the ground since the beginning Delta Force um, and and uh, some some other uh, special forces and and so on. I mean, it's it's no secret. I mean, the CIA had an office in Kiev. Uh, when this conflict broke out, right? They had to move it out of Kiev, supposedly, first to Lvov and then uh, to Poland. But, um, you know, I'm I'm quite sure that even without an office, they're very active in the country. And let's, let's be frank. I mean, Ru- Russian officials have said it. They consider that they're at war with the West. Well, that's kind of my point. Like, but nobody wants to say that, per se. Like, everybody, it's like, everybody knows it. It's in, it's in, when the U.S. said, oh, we don't have any boots on the ground in Syria, there were boots on the ground in Syria. When they kept saying, oh, we don't have any, we're just helping Saudi Arabia doing air flights. And then what happened? It was released accidentally that it wasn't just air flights. It was people, boots on the ground, helping, assisting in that war. Meaning, if it's happening in other countries where these shadow wars and this stuff is taking place, why would it not be this way here? The only difference is because of the ramifications of it, nobody wants to say it and nobody wants to own it. So everybody calls it mercenary. Tell me if I'm wrong. It is pretty widely reported that the same thing actually happened in Syria, in East Aleppo. 
uh, and that when uh, East Aleppo was was freed from Al Qaeda and friends, uh, that Russia at that point simply uh, made some below the table deal with the NATO countries and quietly referred returned their uh, uh, foreign guests. <laughs> um, and I do not think that this is going to happen this time. And the Russian government has already announced that there will be trials, uh, that they will put their foreign guests uh, on trial, and the world will see then uh, what is actually happening. Because these guys are messing around with fire, basically. Like, they're getting themselves in a political situation that they're not going to be able to extricate themselves out of if this stuff gets outed and if it blows up. I mean, just the trepidation that you're having, having this conversation. We have Sky Radar, same thing, trepidation, and even bringing it up. Because everybody gets the ramifications of what it means. And yet, they're still playing around with it. It's almost as if they're having this kind of shadow proxy war going on. And, you know, we can't acknowledge this outright because of the ramifications, but we know this basically is taking place. So the moves and whatever we're making is dealing with that. I mean, that's so, that's, that is so close to the curb on this. And now you're hearing reports of Finland and Sweden, you know, hinting at potentially joining NATO. But one, do you buy it? Yeah, it's not, it's not hinting. It's not hinting. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Russia's response was basically, okay, maybe we need nukes in the Baltics. We, this, is, this is not going to be a non-nuclear place anymore. Um, so, yeah, I mean, let, let's face it. Um, this is not the same to Russia as uh, uh, NATO uh, being, you know, uh, 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 taking over Ukraine. This is, this is not the same. Finland and Sweden have long been essentially de facto members of NATO, right? They regularly do military drills. They regularly purchase arms. Uh, they've been um, uh, working on interoperability with NATO for years. Uh, the Snowden uh, releases uh, showed uh, that the uh, Swedish uh, military intelligence regularly uses electronic uh, you know, warfare capability to spy on Russian communications and passes the information straight on to the Americans, you know, that, that this has uh, long been settled. So Russia will make a lot of noise about this. And, and once Finland and Sweden are official NATO members. Russia will have to respond. Uh, they have had a very light for, force posture on the Finnish border, right? I've I've actually been on on vacation right near that border there, uh, um, uh, in in uh, a kind of like an ecological um, uh, hotel. I, I, that would be saying too much. E e ecological little camp. Oh, like you can see the um, Aurora Borealis or something like that, where they have the glass ceiling. Is that what you mean, or you just something else? Uh, uh, no, no, no. A lot more, a lot more uh, 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 primitive uh, trekker style than that. Oh, you're oh, you're a far better person than I am. I need I need toilets. <laughs> it was a little camp. They, they they actually had all their electricity was generated from. Um, this was on the Russian side. A little um, uh, water, uh, an old factory. Um, uh, waterfall generator, basically. Interesting. A generator, and all the food was uh, was either um, a game or it was sourced from the local uh, cheese and fruits and fish from the local um, so cool. uh, farmers and so on. It was a nice little place. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so I mean, it had been a pretty a, a not very active military border. Now, of course, it will be, and it will actually double the size of. Russia and NATO's existing borders, because that's quite a long 
border there between Finland and Russia, but it's also not the best for a, a kind of attack. Uh, it, the, the terrain is very rough there. Um, it's a lot of a swampy, hilly area. It's not, it's not good for uh, some type of offensive there. But the use of the airspace is useful for NATO. So Russia will have to respond. They will have to have a conventional military buildup there, um, which they did not have before. And they will have to point some nukes in that area, which they did not before. In Finland, security will only become less. And Sweden doesn't have a direct border with Russia, but there is the Baltic Sea, uh, which both of them border. And that will become even more of a flashpoint than it was before. There's a Swedish island there, Gotland, that that Sweden is very paranoid about already. Uh, So it's only going to increase tensions uh, in the Baltic Sea. The Baltic Sea will become at just as much of a flashpoint as the Black Sea is right now, if not more. Um, and it's just, again, all the more possibility for some type of, of accident and escalation that, that everyone would prefer to avoid. And it it will not make Finland and Sweden's security any better. You know, they've had peace uh, since the end of World War II. Finland fought on the Nazi side and was, was, was defeated and agreed to neutrality. And they've had peace since then, but they want to throw it away now because of, you know, politics and this, uh, you know, hysteria that's been building up, which, again, is the result of NATO expansion. And Russia is 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 not going to do uh, to Finland or Sweden, like, like I said, because the, the situation is entirely different there. But it, it will result in a militarized border and less security for everyone around. It just it, it seems like these people are insane, like I, I meaning. If your objective in life is to have less war, less chaos, then it's the most natural thing in the world to not create provocations that basically go that route. And it seems like that what if your what if your goal is hegemony? Yeah, it's that part because it always puts you at odds with somebody else who doesn't necessarily want to be conquered, um, and then use propaganda to cover the fact <laughs> and whitewash all or culpability. At least dominated, yes. So one of the things that actually came out though was a time scale. It seems that the West, for whatever reason. And again, I have, I, they have reported this very warped. And so this is not necessarily shocking. But they've been reporting this as if this conflict for Donbass is going to take place over the course of several months. Well, the, for one, the fighting has been taking place the entire time. And Russia has been steadily making progress. Two. There has been conflict in Donbass for the last eight years. It has to be said, right? The, the Kiev regime, which seized power in 2014, has been attacking their own people there for eight years which is, you know, at the end of the day and the refusal to implement the Minsk Accords to politically reconcile with the people in the east of their own country from the events of the overthrow of the government in 2014, which those people had democratically elected to lead the country. Um, you know, it's been going on since then. That's the part that they leave out here. That's the part that they never say I mean, here. everyone is really concerned about, uh, you know, civilian casualties in you. Ukraine now. I'm just, where was their concern about they didn't civilian get, casualties you know what of I the realized? Kiev regime? They don't consider... They, they are less Ukrainians. Exactly. I mean, they're, because they're pro-Russian Ukrainians, which, you know, is essentially you know, uh, the majority of the east half of the country, but of course especially concentrated there in Donbass. And everyone knows that if, if you are pro-Russian, then you're a little bit less human than other humans, right? That's what it seems like in the way that they talk about it because they ignore that part. Like when you're, man, when you were here in the United States, that part is just not part of the conversation. They, and even they would say, 
well, Russia took those republics, or Russia entered those republics. Like, actually, they were filling, they were trying to get you to fulfill the Mensa Accords, meaning the Mensa Accords wasn't ripping those independent republics or the republics away. They still would have been under, in Ukraine, they would just had a certain degree of autonomy. Like, they always talk about this stuff in these kind of warped ways here where they completely just doesn't give you information. It don't give the correct information. It's just very weird and warped. And that's why I always appreciate you being here. Do you think, right here, uh, I'm just going to read this part. We have about one minute. It's a head of Lugansk People's Republic, Lenit Pachitnik, expressed confidence that the conflict in Donbass will be over soon and peace will be established in the reason as a result of the special operation basically ending. So they're thinking this is going to take place sooner rather than later. What are your assessment of that? And we have about 30 seconds. Yeah, it's not going to be short. It's, I mean, there, there is a potential. We don't, no one knows exactly how many, but there are up to 100,000 Kiev regime forces there, at least at the start of the conflict. They've been pummeled of a certainty, and they're probably running low on ammunition, food, supplies, as the cauldron tights around them. But um, they're really heavily dug in. It's going to be a serious World War II-sized conflict. Oh, wow. Mark, thank you, my man. This is a disturbing, illuminating, always um, necessary conversation. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda one and find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ramshi. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner and only corner, I'm your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and that means you're listening to Fault Lines with Jamal Thomas. I'm gonna have to find a way to say that. That's still weird. Like all of this stuff is still kind of jarring and a little weird. Um, it's, you know what it is? It's because the tighter the connection, the weirder it gets when it's like a disconnect. Like, it's hard to explain. When in, um, yeah, it's hard to explain. I interpret this differently than I think I interpret it with Austin, with Shane. It's like, even though all of them were valuable, all of them were teammates, all of them were, etc. For whatever reason, it's just something different about the way Russell Name and I responded. And it's like the moment that you disconnect that, disconnect, it just feels weird. It takes a while to get used to it. But again, it's work-wife stuff, right? But let's do this. Let's get into the headlines. In the news. In the news. Right here. Florida became the first or the latest U.S. state to sharply restrict abortions after Governor Ron DeSantis signed a 15-week ban into law on Thursday. Quote, we are here to protect life. Unquote. DeSantis said in a nation de fe kissime on Thursday. Quote, we are here today to defend those who can't defend themselves, unquote. The bill slashes the latest date at which women can obtain abortion by nine weeks from 24 weeks to 15 weeks. The only exceptions are if abortion is necessary to save the mother's life, prevent serious injury to the mother, or if the fetus has a fatal abnormality. I'm always amazed at the way Republicans care so much about the unborn, but the moment that child is born, they don't care at all. Well, the moment it is born, that's on you. That's on you. State ain't got nothing to do with it. Deal it with it on your own. So the kid that you basically tried to force, meaning, yes, you're supposed to be this party of, you know, individual liberty and everything else is individual liberty up until the point where, you know, your mother 
um, and you want choice in whether or not you're going to be forced to raise a kid or forced to look at an ultrasound or forced by state to do these things. Um, yeah, it's just, this is unfortunate. I put it that way. And even though I accept one of those things that abortion should be rare, or at the very least they should be um, deprioritized in regards to, you know, it's not necessarily the greatest thing in the world to be people want to do, it should be available. And it should be widely available. And there is no moral stain associated with it in the least. I understand some people feel differently, but at the end of the day, that woman should have a choice. And the idea that the state is going to somehow force her to carry a child is appalling. Just appalling. A San Francisco Chronicle investigation has revealed that lawmakers and staffers close to Senator Dianne Feinstein are fearing that she is losing her mind. Her mental faculties are degrading. An elevator doesn't go all the way up to the top. The temperature thing that goes up doesn't get up to 100 degrees, it only goes to 45. Ultimately, they are raising concerns that the lawmaker is unable to effectively carry out her responsibilities for the job. The lawmakers and staffers would only speak to the Chronicle on condition of anonymity, but they said, of four senators they spoke to, three are Democrats, and everyone who expressed concerns say they did so was painful because they respect they have for the senator and her career. So basically, they are grudgingly at the very least, it's communicated that way because you don't know who they are, right? So you can't really challenge the information one way or the other. But they're grudgingly saying she is not rat tight. She should be eating applesauce. If her family or her husband, if she has one, or her kids loved her, they would say, Mama, you should not be doing this. You cannot represent your constituents with your elevator not going to the top like that. It's time to come home. I got you some applesauce. I got you some butterbrook or ice cream. Let's stop doing this. That's what you do when you love that person. I keep saying Joe Biden's wife doesn't love him. I keep saying it. It's a controversial decision or, or position, but I take the position because the guy is clearly losing his mind. And during the time where he was running through the primaries and everything else, he didn't know what state he was in many times. He looked lost and out of it. I think if I'm not mistaken, he fell asleep when Hillary Clinton was basically giving him um, her accolades for the nomination. I mean, like, this is the guy. And when you are the wife and you see your husband going through that, looking pretty outrageous and saying things that show that he is not altogether there. And you still pat him on the head and say, go out there, tiger. Go out there, Joe. I mean, yeah, if you love your husband, sometimes you take a choice. You take a position because you love them more than your own particular ambitions. Or for that matter, the ambitions of the Democratic Party who wanted to just beat Sanders. That's called love. If I loved my wife like that, I would pull her to the side and say, enough enough. Hence, Jill Biden doesn't love her husband. In international news, Russian Ministry of Defense announced on Thursday that the missile cruiser Masvaka of Moskva had sunk in the Black Sea. Quote, during the towing of the Moskva cruiser to the port destination, the ship lost its balance due to damage to the hull received during the fire following the detonation of ammunition. The ship sank in stormy sea. Unquote. The ministry said in a statement. Israel carried out airstrikes in the suburbs of Damascus on Thursday, Syria's state news agency signed a report. According to the news agency report, the explosions were heard in the sky in the western part of the city. The outlet, citing sources in the military, stated that Israeli jets carried out an air aggression from the north of the occupied Golan Heights and that the targets of the airstrike were situated in the western suburbs of Damascus. I love the way in which they just casually attack another country. Just casually. Casually, casual murder <laughs> and going into breaking other people's airspaces if sovereignty doesn't exist. Astonishing. In tech news, hours after publicly t- 
taking a bid to buy Twitter outright for $41.3 billion and days after becoming the largest stockholder, Elon Musk sat down for a long-form interview during TED 2022 conference in Vancouver, where he explained his vision for the social media company. Musk called Twitter a town square and that having speech in that space is important for civilization's survival, though he emphasized that Twitter, like all public forums, are beholden to the laws of countries they operate out of. Calling for direct balance on someone would not get a free pass on Musk's Twitter, but most forms of speech would. Now, this is somewhat of a straw man, right? Like, yes, I think it's a fair question to say, what are the bounds of speech? And if you have a company where you're saying, okay, I have free speech, where what are the limits of that free speech? Is it open? Is it an absolute? Meaning if you get ISIS on the channel, can ISIS basically um, recruit people um, in the U.S. on the channel? Meaning how far does your free speech go? Are you a free speech absolutist? And most people are not a free speech absolutist in that sense in the way that they talk about it. The fact of the matter is you have to deal with certain practical problems when you're dealing with social media. It is very possible to have a viral, let's say, ad, a viral channel, and that channel is doing something that is utterly and entirely atrocious and that you as a society basically end up having to deal with that. And so what do you do as a platform? Do you allow that particular thing that is getting a huge amount of attention, that is having real-world, physical matter, reality consequences that you and your society don't necessarily want, but because you believe in free speech and it's not actively saying, go kill Bob or go um, throw that person over the bridge, that you basically leave it? Or do you get involved? I mean, the world doesn't necessarily give you these perfect decisions of, here's an absolute um, A and here's an absolute F. Most of the time, it doesn't work that way. You often have competing um, goals that you're basically trying to accomplish where your highest ideological point of view is, yes, I want free speech. By the same token, there are going to be things that run up against that that are going to be on some level subjective and on some level clear. And the fight usually takes place in that subjective realm. And so, yeah, he may be further into this line in regards to, I'm going to let people say what they want, providing they're not necessarily breaking the law and providing they're not necessarily doing something that's hateful going after somebody or that. But from the standpoint of many of the other people who have been just trying to get rid of information in general that they don't particularly like or get rid of points of view they don't particularly like, even that for them is too far. Even that for them is too far. He's trying to make them a platform and they are struggling to be um, a publisher. In business news, mortgage rates have risen by 2% since the start of the year, pushing them higher than 5% for the first time in 11 years. That combined with record high home prices are making it harder than ever for Americans to buy their first home. Just a year ago, the interest rates was 3.04%, and it was even lower in 2020. In an attempt to bring housing prices down and fight inflation by making borrowing more difficult, the Federal Reserve has gradually increased interest rates. Some people would say not increasing fast enough. But keep in mind, when you increase interest rates, the entire point of it is to cut down on the money supply so people don't have as much money to borrow so they don't necessarily have as much money to dump into the economy in and of itself to bring down the heat on the economy. The whole point of it is to bring down inflation in that sense. But it is making money that much more difficult to go out. I mean, Mark Frost will basically say it's their way of trying to curtail growth and everything else. Yes, he's right. But they're trying to do it in order to limit the money supply and to cut down on inflation. In crazy story news, a Tennessee state senator is under fire for using Adolf Hitler as an example of hope and inspiration during a speech on Wednesday. The state senator, Frank Nisley, Republican, made his remarks on the Senate floor during a debate on a bill to campaign, I mean, to make camping and soliciting along state highways or exit ramps a misdemeanor. Nisley said that he was going to give his fellow lawmakers a quote-unquote history lesson, adding that in 1910, 
Hitler took to the streets and practiced his oratory to his people and his people skills. Quote, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. So, for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced oratory and his body language and how to connect with the masses. And then he went on to lead a life that got him into the history books. He said, quote, so a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this, these homeless camps, and they have a productive life, or in Hitler's case, a very unproductive life, unquote. I support the bill. I support the bill. Thank you very much. I, I um, give up the rest of my time. All of the day. Dude, are you telling me? Are you telling me? Are you really telling me that you could think of no other example than Adolf Hitler, the guy that got tens of millions of people killed in a war of aggression? Is that what you're telling me? That you could find no other example to basically align yourself with in order to make that point? God, that is so <laughs> that is so ridiculous. That is so ridiculous. Look, just as a heads up, in case you don't know this, Hitler is not the best person to use as an example to try to, you know, get something passed or to try to encourage people to do something. And then what's weird about it, you're trying to give them this thing of productivity, but at the very end, you're trapped by the framing of your statement and speech. And so you can't say this was a productive thing by Hitler. So you're stuck saying it was very unproductive in this case. But the entire framing of the way that you're telling him is this is a productive thing. Just weird. In holiday news, we have Good Friday, Bengali New Year. We have National Titanic Remembrance Day. Obvious reason. National Rubber Eraser Day. And for this day in history, Jackie Robinson in 1947 breaks the color barrier. Kind of like the speed barrier, the barrier of light. Barrier of color. In 1912, the Titanic sinks. Yesterday, we gave you the report that the Titanic, the unsinkable, hit iceberg. And the Titanic, the ship that was proclaimed by God to not be able to sink. Today, it sunk with 1,500 people basically dying as a result. In 2013, three people killed. Hundreds were injured in the Boston Marathon. In 1865, President Abraham Lincoln dies from a bullet wound after being shot by Confederate sympathizer and actor John Wilkes Booth. This is the whole famous Abraham Lincoln in the movie theater, or in not movie theater, but in the playhouse. Wilkes Booth coming up behind him, pulls the trigger on Lincoln. In 1959, Fidel Castro visits the United States for the first time. Those are your headlines. You're listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. There's a Twilight Zone episode. And Twilight Zone has this ability, especially the black and white one. I would say, go back and look at those. Those things hold up extremely well. And what you would notice is there's ability of acting that basically comes through. And there's a level of humanity that comes through. It comes screaming through. And it's almost like, regardless of the weirdness that those people are dealing with, Sterling was able to get right human interaction and the way people kind of behave, the inner psyche of those people, especially when they're dealing with difficulty or want or craving and how those things get people in certain positions. It is human as human as human can be. It's a beautiful expression in the way that um, the Twilight Zone operates, despite the fact that it's this kind of Twilight Zone thing. One of the episodes that they had had to do with the Civil War. This woman was basically waiting for the person to come back. She's in a house. She's, I think she's sitting with, you know, her, her just, you know, this is the deep South. And all of these people are walking by. She could see him. She's standing at her door at her house and she's on a porch. And one person after the next keeps walking by. And you have these large numbers of men. And some of them are carrying guns. All of them are looking ragged. And she's asking them as they pass by, hey, do you know where so-and-so is? Hey, do you know where so-and-so is? Hey, do you know where so-and-so is? So it's looking basically 
for her husband. That's the person she's waiting on. She knows he's supposed to be coming back. She's waiting on him. The last person who comes back is Abraham Lincoln. And he's walking by himself. And she's talking to him. And he makes the point and says, Miss, there is nobody else behind me. That's the end of it. Now, up to this point, you didn't entirely get it, but you saw, or you know, it's Abraham Lincoln, in which case it's the linchpin to everything else that's in it. This is the Civil War. All of these people are basically dead. And she is looking for her husband. She has already died. Abraham Lincoln, in this case, being the one to steal it. Because the interesting thing about Abraham Lincoln being shot, you can make an argument that him being shot created a, a, a sadness or a situation in the country that basically tied the U.S. north to the south, where this thing didn't necessarily exceed to keep going further, where this hatred and bad blood and everything else prevented this conflict from ending. You could almost make an argument that the fact that that tragedy happened in that sense was the thing that basically prevented us from sliding or being unable or being able to come together. His point to her was, I'm the last one. I'm the last one. It's, it's just a great story. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I am typically joined with my co-host, Fern Franzak. Um, that was addressed early in the morning. But if you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. I'm also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what I'm putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. I'm going to bring in our guests because something interesting happened. And, you know, I have always given you my point of view on some of the articles that come out that are basically hit pieces and stuff like that, because I always find those things to be really interesting that they're taking that much interest and time to do so. Well, at the point where you had all of this pressure that was basically taking place and they was putting on RT and Sputnik, you have all of these hit pieces that came out with the objective and the goal of getting either RT or Sputnik off of social media off of YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, basically to eliminate it from the various spaces. Thus, recently, and the latest, CNN, CNN, and they come out with this sad, sad article with a guy riding around in a car listening to Fault Lines or Radio Sputnik. Saddest thing in the world. The quotes that he's using are basically quotes and intros from the various people who are on the shows. He never got an interview. Nobody wanted to talk to him. And I think he got one person to talk to him, and that was just basically Scotty. But he says something that is not true in this. Garland offered to speak with him with one condition, that basically it needed to be live, meaning you need to take the entire conversation. We're not going to allow you to cut it and everything else. However, in the CNN clip, he basically implied that nobody was willing to do it. That was not true. That was a lie. And I know it was a lie because Garland works here and he's a friend of mine. But to have a conversation about the person who did the interview, who did the interview, we have Scotty Nell Hughes. Scotty Nell Hughes is an American journalist, news anchor, and political commentator. She was working for CNN during the 2016 presidential election, often speaking in support of former President Donald Trump. She, of course, worked for RT America as a full-time anchor back in 2018 and was the host of News Hughes Hughes. 
Um, Scotty, how you doing this morning? Good morning. And I think that you actually need to send a fruit basket over to Alex and CNN because I think they did you quite a great favor because now more people have been exposed to the fact that there is this great radio station on air that you can also find on different platforms called Sputnik, giving a different perspective than what they're hearing. So I actually think a thank you note or even a fruit basket might be in order. Well, well that's, a, that's a really, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It was so sad. The guy is riding around in the car and he turns on the radio. He's like, hey, if you're in D.C., Here's this, here's this show. And it's like, dude, you're a multi-million dollar news station and you're driving around in a car <laughs> turning on a radio station. This is so sad. And it was like CNN didn't even want to publicize it themselves. Like, what was your um, first, what did you think of the final product? Did you feel like you were represented? Well, uh, and, and the one thing that I have to say, and there's two different approaches. There's a Western approach to PR. And there's obviously an approach that a lot of other countries take, including Russia, as I've learned over the last four years, where because they've been at this game a lot longer than us here in the U.S., they kind of are in it for the long haul. They kind of stay low in the canoe and they just ride out the storm. Us in Western press, we're taught in journalism school, all news is good news. And take advantage of every situation you get. So it's two different perspectives of it. And I respect the fact that no Sputnik, you know, no Sputnik person who, who technically is a full-time employee would talk to CNN uh, knowing that more than likely it was going to be twisted, it was going to be edited. I, on the, on the other hand, had a different uh, ability because I had been a former CNN employee, which they noted, they had to note in the story, they couldn't twist me. They couldn't twist what I said too much because it would look them, make them look bad because they hired me as well. And so I knew that I had a little bit more of a grace covering when I did this. And I think at this point, after two, almost two months of my own network um, being canceled, being a part of this cancel culture uh, perspective, that here in, in, in America, I'm tired of our First Amendment, our freedom of press, our freedom of speech, once again, continuously being, uh, being put in a cage, being continuously modified if you go against the narrative that they are going to demonize you. I'm tired of it. And those same people that are, are doing these assaults against RT, against Sputnik, against anybody they don't agree with. And that can include, uh, we can talk about uh, any of the, whether it be Steve Bannon, we can talk about uh, the, the podcast, or what I just forget, Joe Rogan, everybody that they don't like, they go after and they try to cancel on one hand. But then on the other hand, they turn around and they go, we believe in democracy. We believe in free speech. We're here to preserve the Constitution. And, and they do this in the same breath as press. And I'm tired of it. We have to fight back. I don't care if I don't agree with you. And you know what? You and I often don't agree, especially probably on more social issues. I don't care. But you are still an American. You still have the right to the freedom of speech. And as long as you're not encouraging violence against another, then you have every right to say what you want to say. And the people have the right to turn you on or turn you off. And I appreciate that. I totally appreciate that. I think the thing with CNN, though, I didn't trust their intentions. Meaning, like, for example, I gave a perfect example. The woman called from, I believe it was Politico, and she was like, hey, can we get an interview? We really want to talk to you about so-and-so. I mean, we just really want to talk. Now, she immediately, in doing that story, again, she's a reporter 
she ends up contacting YouTube in order to get various shows kicked off the network. So simultaneously, hey, I would like to talk to you while simultaneously I am putting a knife in your spinal column um, in doing so. Meaning these are the type of people you're dealing with. And so it's like, if I'm dealing with somebody like that, I don't trust that person. That person has no good motives and intentions. It's one thing if we have this agreement where it's like, okay, we can have this conversation, but this conversation is basically going to be all included. You're not going to take any breaks, nothing. People are going to see it. They're going to see it. They're going to see it. And I'll give you another one, Abrams. He contacted me. First, he tried to contact Fern. And then when she wouldn't give him the time of day, she contacted me. And, you know, I am more like you on this. Like, to me, it's like, if I'm right, I should be able to win the fight. That's my thought. And it's, it's definitely where you're kind of like itching to have the conversation because to me, it's a competitive thing. It's, I need to, A, prove that I'm right in this case, and I should be able to prove it within the fires of a debate with somebody who disagrees with me in his opposition. That's just where my head works. Baron was like, dude, dude, I am protecting you. That is a bad idea. Don't do that. And she was right. That basically whatever he was telling me in that case of like, oh, dude, this is what we're going to talk about. It's going to be like that. It wasn't that. The moment after the first question, it would have went into something else where they would have basically made something up in order to kind of, again, smear and go after you. Meaning I have to trust their intentions if I'm going to sit there and talk to them because otherwise they're doing it entirely for themselves and entirely to undermine you and the organization you work with. Now, tell me if you think that's wrong or if you, and, and I'm not, man, I'm not saying that to chastise. I'm saying that purely from my own point of view and the reason why I was against having those interviews and sitting down with any of these people like that. I hope that makes sense. It's not a push. You are, no, you are absolutely correct. And I have to tell you, I'm more wary of print reporters than I am of any other. Print number one are the, are the ones you have to be afraid of um, because they can take different p- bits and pieces. In fact, that's their job is to take different bits and pieces and put it into context. Uh, but once again, here's the problem. They want us to go into a hole. They want those of us that actually believe in freedom of speech and freedom of the press and getting ideas out there and letting people make their own decisions. They want us to go back into our own little uh, sphere and never to be heard of again. They want us to go into the ground. And it, what's interesting is that story, as you know, with Kate probably two weeks ago, it took them two weeks to try to figure out how are we going to do this story? And I think that's amazing because you and I both know they can turn, especially in broadcast television, they can turn around tonight. Oh, overnight. Easy. Easy. Exactly. So it took them two weeks to try to figure out how to demonize Sputnik, and they still did not do a good job. And I think that speaks volumes to it. And like you, you know, multiple courses, everybody, I think, especially when RT first uh, went off air, wanted interviews. You had to be very wise with your selection. You look at the reporter you're dealing with. And honestly, there hasn't been any print reporter that I've talked to because most of them I do not trust, sadly enough. Same here. And that, that, that should not be the truth. The, the reality is print was probably one of the first forms of journalism. That's what reporters initially were. They were print journalists. And sadly enough, um, those are the ones that I, I mistrust the most. But the, the, it's, I know you're aggravated by the mainstream and how they do it. Where I'm more aggravated right now, currently two months out, are people that are happy to see that are on our side, that, that take the same point of view. And I, and I say this goes to a lot of podcasters, it goes to a lot of conservatives that say, oh, yes, yes, you know, we are, we are, you know, we're against the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. However, we, you know, we do believe that, you know, Russia has the right to defend their borders. We do believe that there was, that there are Nazis that are taking these same perspectives. 
but they do not support us. They're, in fact, happy to see groups go under because they feel like that gives them more of an audience. Yes. Well, Those are the ones that I don't like. Don't- not just more of an audience, more credibility in the eyes of the people who they're trying to get credibility from. Meaning, like, so it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to take this position and I believe in all of this. However, if I basically hit RT and Sputnik, then I could show my bona fides. It's that nonsense. It's inconsistent. Well, they, they're using us to get their invitation to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yes, that too. What makes me angry right now are certain networks that are known to, to, to attract conservatives because that's the message they preach. That's the message that they tell everybody. They go against Hunter Biden's laptop. In fact, they, that's how they, they, they grab their audience. But in this case, and they're, the, they're the hardest ones to turn against it because I guess they want to be popular and invited to the D.C. parties. Those people right there, those are the ones that make me the most angry. And, and I have to think that they've seen what's happened to, to certain news organizations being targeted, like RT, RT America. They saw what they're trying to do to Sputnik, which, I don't, which is not going to be successful, it seems. No. So give it up. Um, well, that, the guy said that in the interview. He was like, FCC, because again, they were going to people to try to find a way to get rid of us. And so he went to the FCC and FCC was like, dude, First Amendment, get over it. God bless it. For once, actually, the law, the, Lady Liberty won in this case. I know they want her to lose. But here's the deal. I think that they're doing it because they're afraid it's going to happen to them next. And as you know, when, a, when a, a station goes under, millions of dollars go with it. People's lives are affected. Years of work are just deleted and poof. And they don't want to see that happen to theirs. So then they're taking this, they're taking this defensive stance where there are offensive stance against people like Sputnik and RT America because they don't want to see it happen to them. And they're very fearful because they know it will. But I have a newsflash for them. It doesn't matter whatever happens to, to Sputnik and RT America. They're coming after them anyways. Just give it time. You cannot appease this crowd enough. If you are not lockstep in the narrative right now, you will be targeted. You will be canceled. And I don't care what type of fluff, you know, and and these conservatives and Republicans right now, it's it's very aggravating to watch. And we saw it recently with Donald Trump and his comments that he agreed with Joe Biden about a genocide happening in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. They're not going to like you. They might take, they might, you know, bite their tongue for one minute, but they're going to come after you on something else. You're never going to win them over. The only way that you properly combat this, this aggressive behavior of silencing people is to be just as strong back. And that honestly is the reason why I did the CNN interview. Look, I agree with you holding your shape and everything else. I thousand percent agree with you on that. Zero um, disagreement that, I mean, because honestly, I don't think we could even do a job like this if it wasn't this kind of dogged determination to push back for this notion of this is the part that's more true, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that part. I'm curious, though, how long was the interview in general? Like when you sat there and talked to him, how long did it go? Well, that's what's interesting. So I sat there and talked to him for about 15 minutes. And that's the only, and they only played, for those who've not seen the clip, they only played like 15 seconds. Right. My comment. <laughs> right. And because I, that's the other part is that I made sure in every clip that I made, I, or every comment I made, there was always a twist, whether it be in the middle or the end, that said, you do believe in the freedom of speech. You do believe in the freedom of the press. You do believe in your own audience's intelligence. I made sure that whatever clip they played. Something like that was going to be in it. Exactly. It's going to make them look bad if they did not flip it, if, if they cut it or they edit it. So, you know, it, it, it does take a lot of craft. And, there, and I literally, when I hung up, I went, well, this could go either way. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's like he takes a two-second bit, and it's like that's what, that's what he uses. Oh, that's funny. 
We have to push back. I agree with you with the pushback stuff. I'm just not entirely sure how. Oh, it, like, because for me, it's, um, what is the, how do you get in a position where you have the highest propensity or the highest potential for success? And in a situation like that, it's like, there's so many, look, you guys have done TV for a very long time. I haven't. And so my context of this stuff, it's not, it's not ordering it to this. For me, I would never bring somebody on to have an interview where I'm trying to sandbag them. I would never bring somebody going with the idea of putting a knife in them and being dishonest to them in an interview. It wouldn't occur to me to do that. It's, it's a higher responsibility for the job and the role to me. And so when I'm dealing with other people, it doesn't immediately occur to me that that's how they're going to be because that's not the way I am. And then it's like when you're dealing with TV people and you kind of get like friends saying, look, dude, this is television. This is not, those people don't act that way. This is not the way that works behind the scenes. Like it gives you this kind of lesson that you guys, I guess, have understood over the course of the so many years that you guys have been doing this. Um, that's not the way my head works. It just takes, it's a learning curve for me in a way that it's not for you guys. So I'm more trepidatious at doing that. And I get that. But do you know who honestly taught me how the best to handle interviews was your own Lee Stranahan. Really? The story multiple times before. Lee Stranahan was probably, and he was a print reporter at the time, was the hardest press person I'll be on uh, 10 years ago when I was representing a group. He was right in going after but I would put in the face of having to try to defend. And it ended up, and he taught me how a, a good way in dealing with the reporter when they're asking questions legitimately. If, if this reporter, if Alex and CNN had a legitimate concern, if I could look at him and say, you know what, that's very valid, then I have to admit, that's a great point. You're right. I'm going to reconsider where I'm at. I knew he didn't. Right, <laughs> right, right. I, so I knew that where I could go with that, I had the truth on my side 100%. In this interview, so I could push back on him. Lee brought up great points, and it ultimately came down to you know what, Lee, you're right. And admitting that what my perspective was needed to be changed, needed to be adjusted, I needed to look at it from where this print reporter was coming in. But Lee Stranahan was the hardest interviewer that I ever had to sit through and try to defend something that ultimately was indefensible. And that it also it came down to me saying, you know what, Lee. You're right. And that's why Lee and I are good friends today. And that's why I believe in a product that he endorses, which led me to you. Because if he's willing to hold people's feet to the fire, that means you are too. Even if we don't agree on it, we have the idea that we need to have this conversation here in America and also around the world. Thousand percent, yes. Like, I, I honestly, I've started to get, it's funny, I am a lefty's lefty. And it seems that I've started to get along with far more people on the right. And it's not like policy stuff. It's more so just, I don't know, man. Liberals have lost their minds. Like, they, they've, they, they've gone insane on a lot of the stuff. So even if it's a conflict in regards to the right person, you know, the right winger, in a sense, it's still, for whatever reason, like, easier and, and weird. That's one, that one is a little weird. That one's a little weird. Let me do this. Speaking of liberals, um, criminal liberals, Michael Sussman. Michael Sussman. So John Durham's investigation, of course, basically indicted Sussman and released all of this information that implicated kind of the inner circle of Hillary Clinton in regards to lying to the FBI and everything else. I mean, lying to the FBI, spying on Trump. I mean, just atrocious, atrocious stuff. And like I said, the slap on the wrist is not enough for the gravity of events that basically took place with Russiagate. And so right here, federal judge presiding over the case of former Clinton lawyer Michael Sussman denied his request to dismiss the case brought by special counsel John Durham on Wednesday ordering that the trial go forward as planned next month. Sussman in February filed a motion to dismiss the case against him. Sussman was charged with making a false statement to a federal agent and has pleaded not guilty. How do you plead not guilty? They got you on text message 
lying flagrantly to the FBI. Um, what is your thought about this? I, I've, yeah, you know, God got him off. Good. <laughs> Good. God bless John Durham. John Durham is doing God's work. That's where I'm at. How do you, <laughs> what's your point of view on this? Well, here, here's the problem that I have with all of this, and it has involved the whole Russia Gate side of it. Uh-huh. Again, do we think, even if we get close to the truth of what happened, is, I don't think there should be any doubt in anyone's mind right now that something uh, nefarious, something unethical happened between the Clinton campaign, everybody involved, and, and this whole creation of a, of a conspiracy. Um, what was deemed a conspiracy is this whole creation of, of trouble between the campaign and what they were trying to do to count to, to go against not only Trump, but to go against the Republicans, to go against their opposition. There's no doubt in it. And if you doubt it, then, then you're just completely being blind to it. But will we ever know the truth? And, I, and like I said, I agree. Thank you, Durham, for continuing to push on this. But the reality is, will we ever see accountability of it? I mean, you look yesterday, I guess it was another... Um, out in California, one of the Clinton's good friends mm-hmm. who basically drugged to uh, to drug to uh, I guess they were minors or to two men. He finally was sentenced. How much coverage that got on the mainstream media? And he was a huge mega donor to to the Democrats, to multiple Democrats. that was also involved in the Russia Gate with Clinton and funding uh, this. What they obviously knew was lies that they were pushing. It doesn't matter. That's the that's the whole point. And actually, it ties back into to what we were talking about, because that's why they want people like your voice, my voice shut down, because we are the ones that would continue to talk about it. You're the only one, I guarantee this morning, having the conversation that is mentioning Sussman, especially to a certain extent. You're the one that's actually going against that outside of maybe Fox News that they expect. You're a progressive bringing this up. How dare you? You're, fit, you're not going along with the narrative. Your voice needs to be shut down because you want to hold your own party accountable for the wrongdoings they've done. Um, they are not my party. Gather. First thing, <laughs> they are not my party. Um, I didn't vote for Biden in the least. Um, I didn't vote for either of them because, you know, my rule of this, my rule of thumb is that there's no point in giving somebody a vote that is not going to represent your interests. Otherwise, what's the point? It, meaning they have nothing at that point to give you at the point where you're saying, here's my vote. Here's this thing of value that I basically have that I'm transferring over to you because I'm getting something in return for it. Well, at the point where it's like, I'm giving you this because I'm terrified of the other party, then what reason, what rationale do the party or does the party have to listen, respect, or pay attention to you in the least? You're getting your vote almost like a perfunctory thing. And so, no, they're not going to get my vote when I don't necessarily think they're going to be doing their jobs. And the last thing I'm going to do is basically reward them for nothingness. Like, that's, that's where I am with this. And I think, honestly, most lefties should think that way. All of those people that went and voted for Sanders, if all of those people were willing to say, you know what, you're not representing our interests, figure it out yourself. They will get the change that they want. But until they're willing to do that and hit that fear hurdle, nothing changes. The fear thing is the issue. They need to be able to work in unison and be able to use their vote for weight and leverage. And for whatever reason, they consider, they consider themselves Democrats. And they're not. And until they realize they're not, then that ability to use that power, that leverage never comes about. That's my take on it. I mean, so it's like, no, I don't like talking about deviating from the Democratic Party. No, after they cheated Sanders, I was done. I was done. It was a wrap. It was a wrap. It was like animosity and everything else. From your standpoint, go for it. And I agree with you on this. It goes to show, though, the extent that campaigns will go 
to to go after their opposition, not only their opposition, but to ruin everybody else. And that was the whole point of what I believe all of this is about. It was not only about Trump. It was to intimidate anybody else to ever support Trump or somebody like Trump or support any Republican. Because if you look at it, because what, what you're talking about is that Sussman had, you know, he, he might get a maximum of five years in prison. But Carter Page, um, you go down the list of everybody that because of Sussman, their lives have been ruined. Their financial abilities have been ruined. Millions of dollars in debt. It was the same thing with General Flynn. They, their lives are, and the next time one of these people come forward, people are going to think twice before trying to go to defense of them, to, before they be on their side, because they see people like Carter Page and everything and the world did to him and everything that did to him as well as what we saw Michael Flynn. And, and they, their, their lives were completely destroyed because they stood by one man. Now, here's the problem I have Republicans. That one man has not stood by them. Uh, he did, he did at the end, he pardoned Michael, General Flynn. But General Flynn's not down at Mar-a-Lago right now with, with Donald Trump. He's completely turned over. Carter Page isn't invited. And right now, everybody whose lives have been ruined because they stood in support of Donald Trump, I believe should be sitting at a table at the right hand of Donald Trump every meal he eats. Okay, fair enough. They at least deserve a free stay at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> right, right. It's like give them something, a T-shirt or something. I, well, that gets to the whole Republican thing then. What is – the Republican Party at this point is fascinating to me as the Democratic Party. I love this stuff because ultimately Donald Trump, even though he is almost like the face on some level of the party, he is like the base per se. You still get the situation where the people who are the elites in the party can't stand him. I mean, there's like articles coming out recently where they were saying how, oh, the guy's a clown. Oh, nobody cares about the election being stolen, et cetera, et cetera. By the same token, he seems to be the dominant force in the party that has shaped almost like the identity of the Republican Party, love it or hate it. And some of that stuff is good with this kind of skepticism towards war stuff, even though Donald Trump is, you know, he's flaky on that. But all things being equal, he has seemed to set the tone of the party, despite the fact that the leadership is not on board for Trump. That's so weird. That's so weird. Like, usually when I'm seeing it on the left, you're seeing it in the sense of like lefties and Bernie Sanders and how there's a, 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 a mismatch in regards to leadership. But the difference is it's inverted. Donald Trump has, let's say, more weight and leverage in regards to the body of the politic. And he is perfectly willing to use it to try to get elected. So how is that going to work? And if Republicans take it in the way that we're expecting them to take it, are they going to do something about the previous investigations? I mean, Democrats spent three years doing investigations, are Republicans going to take time to figure out, okay, maybe Durham doesn't go far enough. Maybe there are things that need to be investigated that were not being touched. Meaning, are they going to go into the investigation, specifically the Hunter Biden stuff and the laptop stuff and the implications of Joe Biden and all? They got the opportunity to do it. Are they going to do it? But here's how I know, unfortunately, they're not. Ah, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> that's horrible. <laughs> because the same people that push the Russiagate scandal are the same ones that push the coronavirus lockdown. They're the same ones that turn around and they're now pushing the, you know, $800 billion, million for Ukraine and that narrative. And they're continuing to win because why? It's advantageous to them. So unfortunately, this is just going to be a fundraising tool for them. And I think this is why Republicans right now are in a, have a real problem. And at this point, they're using, it's not about, here's the reason why Donald Trump is still so powerful within the party. Because Donald Trump can attract a crowd more than anyone else. And where Democrats don't care necessarily about a crowd and, and people supporting in person, Republicans do. And so as long as Donald Trump can still attract under this narrative that he might run for president again, 
thousands, and I mean still thousands at his rally, still has that power, he's still going to be the lead person within the Republican Party. Here's, however, though, where he is going to be weakened, is recently he made some very unpopular choices in regards to who he's supporting uh, for different offices running this year in the midterm. You mean like Dr. Oz, Sarah Palin, like those type of people? Well, Sarah Palin still, you know, we can have our, our conversations about her because she obviously took off the establishment wing. She doesn't necessarily have a voting record outside of Alaska, which, you know, we can talk about what's your, what, what are your choices there to be a conservative in Alaska. Um, but we're talking about Dr. Oz. We're talking about what's going on right now in Alabama with the Mo Brooks endorsement that he had, then he pulled. We're talking about another one, I think, that just came out of North Carolina that he did. Uh, we have one in Tennessee that we're having to deal with right now. As long as he continues to make these poor choices and people ask him why, is it because you're getting paid to make those endorsements or donations going to your PAC? You're obviously not looking at what their um, at what their background is. You're obviously not looking at what their votes are because it doesn't match up with even what you say your principles are. So what is causing you to make these choices to put your endorsement behind them? And as those endorsements continue to not only lose, but damage what the threshold of what it takes to be a conservative, that's how he loses power. And that's what's going to be interesting to watch here over the next few months, but definitely come November, because I still think we're going to have a major red wave. But how many of those red waves with Donald Trump or people going against Donald Trump? Because when he picks these people and the other guy wins, it weakens him. And that's where you have that voice of DeSantis that is continuing to creep up. Uh-oh. And this is not <laughs> DeSantis is just sitting back and watching all of this going on. He's not going to go against the person that got him elected to office. But if he sees that Trump is so weak that he is he'll be ready to step up if that need be. So that is the that is the game that's happening right now within the Republican Party. And right now, unfortunately, those surrounded, I do believe, by Trump are continuously using this to make their money knowing that their their lives might be short-lived in politics coming down the road um, as long as they're with this in. The Trump name really has a test of this year and to see whether it continues or not. You think so? I mean, like, it, like you don't think that the events of January 6th and those type of things that, let's say when you're talking about Trump in the election in the abstract, that people would compare him to Joe Biden and say, okay, Joe Biden is a dumpster fire. Donald Trump, at the very least, have these kind of fond memories or whatever. But the moment that you get Trump back, let's say, in a fact standpoint, that it becomes the same dynamic of people being reminded of what went on during the Trump era. Like, meaning, is it a situation where in the Republican Party they would actually take a back seat to Trump if he's doing well, despite the fact that leadership in this case don't necessarily like him? Like, I guess what I'm getting at is you don't think that anybody is going to challenge Trump for that throne, including DeSantis, if it's something to gain out of it. Not just in the abstract where it's like, okay, I'm just going to push up against, not that. Like, okay, there's a tournament, there's a championship here to get. A championship is basically the primary. And I'm going to take it. I'm going to be the dark horse. And I get that Papa Trump is in it. I don't care. The goal is to get the win. Like, they don't, they're not going to be that deliberate and straightforward in trying to go after that particular crown, believing that Toronto Trump had his time, his time has passed. He's not the best thing for the Republican Party. And they're pushing through. Tell me how you think, because I mean, that fight seems that it's going to have to take place at some point. It just seems to be percolating. Uh, no, it won't. And the fight might be between Mitt Romney and Donald Trump, and we can tell you who's going to end the, mm. how that's going to end. Because within the Republicans, conservatives are still going to, to back Trump if there's no other option, especially 
if someone like Mitt Romney is the person running against him. Uh, but what, the best campaign right now for any Republican is the average American going to the grocery store. The average American right now, even though gas prices have come down uh, because we've tapped into our reserves, uh, the average American, you know, whose who's child not being deployed to go fight in a war. Uh, that right there is, is the campaign. It's not a run against it's not a run right now against Republican. It's a run. The Democrats are doing the best campaign commercials for Republicans currently. But that doesn't mean that they'll go, that conservatives will go for any Republican. I'm glad you said that. Romney. I'm glad you said that because, you know, Biden's approval rating is basically in the toilet at this point. I'm, I look, I'm glad that you're here because we get to have a conversation about domestic politics and I always love this stuff. From the standpoint of Democrats, an article came on the Hill. It says Democrats say they've done a lousy job highlighting their accomplishments this year of unified power in Washington and blaming us on the possibility that they may suffer losses in the midterms. Now, think about what I just said there. And I just said, quote, look, I'm not going to BS. We've done an effing horrible job. And sometimes I think we deserved a big loss in November, said one Democratic strategist. Quote, Democrats can say whatever they want, but it's not honest. The narrative here doesn't exist. The strategist added, we need to wake up and we need to wake up fast. Now think about what these guys are saying. This is them, Democrats, talking to themselves. And their response is, we have done fantastic. The problem is we haven't communicated how well we've done. That's our issue. Think about what I'm saying for the moment. Like most of the public is in the mindset that Biden has failed miserably, monstrously. And you can go down the list of items. There's no $15 out of wage. There's no public option from the standpoint of healthcare. He didn't give her the $10,000 of um, student loan stuff. He should have did it all. He didn't do it as president. He didn't do it. Meaning, even if these things are on the left, fair enough, he got elected from the standpoint of people on the left. And these are the things that he basically promised, whether you agree with these things or not. These are the things he said, this is what I'm going to deliver. The, mar- um, the marijuana thing. Some of these things are firmly within Joe Biden's power to do, and he just didn't do it. Then you have COVID numbers. Well, like nearly half a million under Joe Biden's watch alone. You have the, the vaccine stuff and the rollout was just, just a cluster. And then you even have the Afghanistan stuff. And now you have Joe Biden dragging this country close into a war. And in their heads, the problem here is that Joe Biden hasn't been able to communicate all of the great things and the love and light that he's been for America. Isn't that amazing? You can't highlight what you don't have. <laughs> right, 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 right. And the Democrats, the problem that they have with this is that the narrative keeps being spoiled by reality. And while they have the press on their side, I think overwhelmingly, the press can only spend so much. And while we we can debate whether or not their credibility, there is still at least a little ounce that they have to have truth to spin. And they don't even have the truth right now to spin about what is good. Like you said, those promises that you said on the campaign trail that might appeal to a progressive like you, that's my hell as a conservative. Right. I accept that. That's why I even framed it that way. <laughs> you may hate it, but this is what he promised. You know, that's why I framed it that way. And, and that's the key is that so they can't even rally their base right now because he hasn't done what their base wants them to do. In fact, Joe Biden is probably the best Republican candidate to speak right now. He is the best cheerleader you want. Republicans. He's doing a great job for it. Those things are not getting done. But here's the dangerous part to it. It wasn't like Joe Biden, despite him being the most popular president ever elected in U.S. history, um, it's not like he ever had a big crowd of support. It's never like he had. No one can look at what happened in 2020 and say it was a traditional election year, that if it would have been more of a traditional one, that Joe Biden would have won. 
if we would not have had to make certain changes based on coronavirus and who could vote, who didn't, everything that went with that. So, and I'm not saying that, that everything was legal that happened, but there were, it was a different election year. And for, so for Democrats to be, there should be no reason to have the most popular president elected in 2020, but then two years later expected an overwhelming red, uh, wave in the House and the Senate of red, of Republicans taking power. That, does that mean the Democrats have not been able to hold on to their base that much? Or were people that much looking for a change, which I believe they were, from the decisions being made by Trump, including his own, including those independents that got him the race in 2016? And so now we look into 2024, and we're going to be, if we keep on this track, they're going to be looking for a change again. The question is, will they be willing to go backwards? And I do not think so, especially if they see that the Trump endorsements in 2022 are losing endorsements. They're going to need strength. They're going to need a winner as Republicans, as independents. And only if Trump does not run will you see other Republicans that are true conservatives step up and challenge him. Like I said, I think Mitt Romney will challenge him because somebody's speaking to him. But that will, if Mitt Romney challenges him, he will overwhelmingly win because that will fire up Trump's base. Because the only thing that conservatives hate more than Joe Biden right now is those rhino Republicans led by Mitt Romney. <laughs> Basically, the Liz Cheney's of the world and everything else. Um, one thing before you go. Please. Elon Musk. Got to get to this. So Elon Musk basically gets into this thing of potentially buying Twitter. And we were talking about this in office because we weren't sure if, that, if he was going to try to buy it, in which he ended up being right. It, we ended up kind of hitting this right in the office. So right here, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Right here. So it's hours after publicly making a bid to buy Twitter outright for $41.3 billion and days after becoming its largest stockholder. Elon Musk sat down for a long-form interview during TED 2022 conference in Vancouver, where he explained his vision for the social media company, Musk called Twitter a town square, and that having free speech in that space is important for civilization's survival, though he emphasized that Twitter, like a public forum, are beholden to the laws of a country that they operate of, calling the direct violence of someone who basically they won't get a free pass on it if you're trying to break the law. Now, what's interesting about this is Rumble was, again, one of those companies that they were basically trying to get to get rid of RT. Rumble responded in a pretty brutal email. He said, here are the emails we received from Globe and Mail demanding that we know why we aren't dutifully copying YouTube censorship. It is now common that we receive pressure from journalists demanding that we censor more. See the next couple of tweets. He said, there's a reason the public has radically turned against both the corporate media, such as your outlet and big tech, because you have arrogantly claimed to yourselves the power to decide for the public what information they can and cannot be trusted to hear and what views they can and cannot express. By stark contrast, the reason that Rumble is growing so rapidly is because we trust adults to make decisions and we trust about the ideas that they can express and we trust them to make up their own minds by hearing all sides. Basically, yeah, 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 we accept what you're saying, but that's why people hate you. Now, if Elon Musk was able to get his hands on Twitter and he is looking at Twitter from the standpoint of a, let's say, I guess, a town square. People should have the right to talk in a town square. Does that create a change in the momentum in regards to the way social media curtails? You have rumble that seems to be growing. You have this free speech zone, meaning is this a backlash from the people who are basically trying to censor? Is this a turn of the worm? I would hope so. And optimistically, I want to say yes. But I say that being cautious, as we have learned, just when you think that we've turned that corner, there is something. And, and maybe Elon Musk is too rich to care. Um, 
but everybody has something. Everybody has an Achilles heel. And if they decide that they want to try to threaten to cut Elon Musk's Achilles heel, whatever that might be, and he cares, then this whole thing will be reversed. And, and unfortunately found is that when it not only will that momentum stop, it will be harder the next time we try to surmount an argument for freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And so I hope that he truly is going to, that, that they, even if they threaten, which I'm sure they have at this point, to cut his Achilles heel, whatever that might be, whether it's personal, professional, or having to do with his company, uh, I hope that he just looks at him and says, I'm, I'm charging on. That was what the same reason that, you know, I think Trump was so attractive to so many. They thought he was too big. He could care less. He did not care. They found his Achilles heel. They brought him back. They weakened him. He ultimately lost. Let's see if Elon Musk. Unfortunately, the bad news is, is we're looking for these people that are billionaires, that are mega rich, to be our, our, our Avengers. And there's always a danger to that right there because they're already, they're not seeking this. I, I, I honestly believe nothing against Elon Musk or any of them, even Donald Trump. They weren't seeking this to, as a, you know, the, the, to make, to put freedoms and our constitution and the general good of the people as their priority. That, that is not a hundred percent. You can't say they're not, they're too much of a narcissist. They're doing this for something personal, whether it's a personal accomplishment, whether it's for their legacy, whether it's because they want to be done that they're so powerful that they change history, whatever it is, there is a narcissistic reason for these men who are unfortunately the richest of the rich, the oligarchs, the American oligarchs to do this. And sometimes the added benefit is us. We, the people get to have a, have a win. But you always have to wonder, what is their motivation? Because they could just go sit out on their mega yacht in the middle of the Caribbean and push their buttons and have nothing to do with this and just watch America continue to crumble. So why are they choosing not to? Absolutely. I mean, basically, I look at it as if we are dependent upon billionaires for free speech, we don't have it in the first place. Um, we have a question by Ingrid from D.C. Ingrid, what's going on this morning? How are you doing? Oh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, since Scotty's on... I wanted to ask her, some people are talking about drafting Colonel Douglas McGregor to run for president. And if he could be convinced, wouldn't he have to run as a uh, Republican to be viable? What are your thoughts, um, Scotty? We have about one Ingrid, minute. Great question. And I love Colonel McGregor, and I think he would be wonderful. Unfortunately, he could not win. That's the other issue that we're, that's what they use against Republicans often, is they put out their candidates to splinter the vote, to confuse the vote, to, to make people be hurt so that they will not go when their guy loses, that they won't go to the polls. He would be amazing. He'd be wonderful. He'd have to run as a Republican. And unfortunately, it would not be, he, he would not be able to amount to what it needs to win at this stage as president. But that would be in a wonderful day when people could just go and cast their vote. And that's as simple as that. And you did not have billions of dollars involved in elections. He would be an amazing candidate. It would be amazing to see him run. Unfortunately, we don't live in that era, and I don't think we'll ever get that genie back in the bottle. Scotty, thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Scotty Nell Hughes, there we are. Scotty Nell Hughes is an American journalist, news anchor, political commentator. She was working for CNN during the 2016 presidential election, often speaking in support of Trump. And she was the former anchor for RT America on the show News Views Views. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. 
live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens to the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and that means you're listening. Fault Lines with Thomas, or with Jamal Thomas. Man, that is awkward. I gotta find a way to say that. It's just it's weird sometimes when you're trying to um, change that and alter that. No worries. We'll work it out. On Monday, it'll be intact. Oh, by the way, so we're gonna have a guest host. And the guest host is gonna be the one and only Manila Chan. And so she is gonna be starting on Monday. Um, this is complicated because technically she is not full-time. In this situation, she will be a temporary guest host that can go for a month, that can go for three months, that can go for a year. No, it's yes, it's completely unpredictable. Um, no, it's not the sexiest thing in the world in regards to stability. Uh, but at the very least, we will have opposition by somebody who is quite talented, who I like greatly. And ultimately, her show was the show that basically got me watching RT, um, her and Rick Sanchez. I think she was on In Question. Rick Sanchez was, I forget the name of his, but I used to love both of their shows and their ability to kind of go through information, explain it, et cetera, et cetera. So when she was open to the opportunity, we were open at that point, graciously, <clears throat> um, arms wide open in that sense. Despite the fact, things still feel weird and awkward with, um, with, so put it this way, just so, that's all, that's very early. Um, but, Manila Chan is going to be great. Her and I have co-hosted once before when we were on the backstory. So I have zero qualms or issues with it. I have infinite confidence and faith that she is going to be perfectly awesome. You guys are going to love her. And in the times that she's been here before, she's done quite well. The only weirdness about it is just kind of the unpredictability of it, where it's an open question for how long, at any point it could change, that type of stuff. But all things being equal, she's doing this like massive favor. I'm helping them out. So it should be good. What I'm hoping is she's like, oh my God, I love this so much. I just don't want to go anywhere. We're just going to stay forever. That's in my head. We'll see how that works out in practice. But all things being equal, let's do this. Let's get to the headlines. In the news. In national news, Florida became the latest U.S. state to sharply restrict abortions after Governor Ron DeSantis signed a 15-week ban into law on Thursday. Quote, we are here today to protect life, unquote, DeSantis and Nashion de Bay in Kissimmee on Thursday. Quote, we're here today to defend those who can't defend themselves, unquote. The bill slashes the latest date at which women or woman can obtain an abortion by nine weeks from 24 weeks to 15 weeks. Basically a time frame where some people don't even know they're pregnant. The only exceptions are if the abortion is necessary to save the mother's life, prevent serious injury to the mother, or the fetus as a fatal abnormality. Otherwise, the state is trying to force a woman to carry a child. It's amazing. A San Francisco Chronicle investigation has revealed that lawmakers and staffers close to Senator Dianne Feinstein are fearing, terrified, that she is losing her mental faculties, raising concern that the lawmaker is unable to effectively carry out the responsibilities of her job. The lawmakers and the staffers would only speak to the Chronicle on condition of anonymity, but they said of the four senators they spoke to, three are Democrats, and everyone who expressed concern said they were doing so painfully because of the respect they have for her and her career. Pin in that. Come back to that. Come back to that. In international news, Russian Ministry of Defense announced on Thursday that the missile cruiser Moskva has sunk in the Black Sea. 
quote, during the towing of the Mosva cruiser to the port city or port of destination, the ship lost its balance due to damage to the hull received during the fire following the detonation of ammunition. Ship sank in the stormy sea, unquote, the ministry said in statement. Now we had Mark Sloboda on, again, voice of truth. Um, and he tends to be very straightforward and honest when he talks about this stuff, which is the reason why I love him on the show. He gives a lot of context. And he made the point of saying, look, there's people in disagreeing in regards to what basically took place. But he believes that it was actually hit with something and that the munitions basically went on fire after it was hit by some kind of missile or something. Now, the catch becomes what kind of missile? And is this something that Ukraine basically had in their inventory? Or is this something that they got from, let's say, the UK or the United States, specifically speaking, the Harpoon missile. Now, the reason that people are hush-hushing this and the way that they're talking about this is in these hushed, soft tones and not necessarily want to bring attention to this because the moment that you bring attention to it, you're stuck with a dilemma. A NATO nation has basically been giving weaponry that has basically changed the context of some of the fields on the battlefield. And yes, just because it's print brick doesn't necessarily mean it's not annoying and that you need to respond to it. And yes, they have been responding and kind of these massive escalations over the course of the night to retaliate and respond to the border towns hits and everything else. But the point that I'm making here is, at what point does Russia start to consider the other NATO countries belligerents? And while they may explain it or understand that to be now, it's secondary to the point of whether or not they explain it and talk about it in the open, where they're basically forced to do something about it and it becomes a political situation. This is politics, right? And it's politics in this kind of, yes, in these kind of grand scales of war, but we even within the context of that, of that war, there are things that are being balanced and managed, but they don't necessarily want to go too far because they don't necessarily want to get stuck in a political quagmire that they can't extricate themselves out of. So you deal with it in a measured approach in the way that you use your language and everything else to downplay it until you want to get to the point of not downplaying it. But you have to deal with it on the overt level, in which case it creates a political issue. I guess my point is there's a lot of politics that seems to be going into this war that is, I don't know, it's just hush. Even when we're talking to Scott um, Ritter or talking to Mark, everybody who you hit that conversation with would admit, okay, yeah, this sounds more right. By the same token, I feel some kind of way about saying it because the ramifications are so massive. Just keep your eye on it. That's all. The Israel carried out airstrikes in the suburbs of Damascus on Thursday, Syria state agency Sina reported. According to the news agency's report, the explosions were heard in the sky in the western part of the city. The outlet, citing sources in the military, stated that Israeli, Israeli jets carried out, quote, an air aggression, unquote, from the north of the occupied Golan Heights, and the targets of the airstrike were situated in western suburbs of Damascus. Amazing how you just invade somebody's airspace like that in order to kill people. In tech news, hours after publicly making a bid to buy Twitter outright for $41.3 billion and days after becoming its largest stockholder, Elon Musk sat down for a long-form interview during TED 2022 conference in Vancouver where he explained his vision for the social media company. Musk called Twitter a town square and that having free speech in that space is important to civilization's survival though he emphasized that Twitter, like all public forums, were beholden to the laws of countries that they operate out of. Calling the direct balance on some would not get a free pass in Musk's Twitter, but also most forms of speech would. In business news, mortgage rates have risen by 2% since the start of the year, pushing them higher than 5% for the first time in 11 years. 
That combined with record-high home prices are making it harder than ever for Americans to buy their first home. To buy their first home. Just a year after the interest rate was 3.04% and even lower in 2020, but in an attempt to bring housing prices down and fight inflation by making borrowing more difficult, the Federal Reserve has been gradually increasing interest rates. In a crazy story news, a Tennessee state senator is under fire for using Adolf Hitler as an example of hope and inspiration during a speech on Wednesday. The senator, or state senator, Frank Neasley, Republican, made the remarks on the Senate floor during a debate on a bill making camping and soliciting along the state highway on exit ramps a misdemeanor. Nisley said that he was going to give his fellow lawmakers a history lesson, added that in 1910, Hitler took to the streets and practiced his oratory and his people skills. Quote, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while, so for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced oratory and his body language and how to connect with the masses and then went on to lead a life that got him into the history books. Unquote. Another quote. So, a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. It's not a dead end. They can come out of this, these homeless camps, and have a productive life, or, in Hitler's case, a very unproductive life. Yes, he's arguing this for Hitler, and then he ends it, I support this bill. You've just given this weird history, <laughs> this weird lesson about Hitler and productivity and how Hitler was homeless and Hitler was, was, you know, still made something of himself, even though he was homeless. And you use this in the context of pushing for a particular bill. Great. <laughs> That's great. In holiday news, we have Good Friday. We have Bengali New Year. We have National Titanic Remembrance Day. National Rubber Eraser Day. And on this day in history, in 1947, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier. In 1912, the unsinkable ship, the Titanic, sinks, killing 1,500 people. In 2013, three people killed, hundreds injured in the Boston Marathon bombing. In 1865, President Abraham Lincoln meets his grim fate with a bullet wound after being shot by a Confederate sympathizer and actor John Wilkes Booth. In 1959, Fidel Castro visits the U.S. for the first time. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm sorry, as I as I do this stuff, I often get flooded with multiple thoughts at once. And sometimes it's like you're sifting through those thoughts when you're trying to basically trying to read it at the exact same time. And sometimes it just, you know, it, it stalls a bit. The Abraham Lincoln thing, if you ever want to see what happened after John Booth shot Lincoln, it is a fascinating story. I mean, jumping off of the thing, getting injured on the run, meeting up with the other troops and in the book. It is a fascinating, fascinating story. Definitely check it out. But what I wanted to go back to was the Twitter thing. Look, I am not a huge fan of Elon Musk. Never been. I am not a fan of billionaires in general. And under normal circumstances, Musk just coming in saying, I'm going to do this. That's just what he wants to do. It just so happens that this, in this particular moment, just coincide with what you like. Has nothing to do with you as an individual per se. Musk just has the option to do whatever he wants. Now, that is not the same thing as being unprotected or free speech. Musk can get a tumor tomorrow and then turn around and tweet Twitter worse, especially if it's a private entity. In the same way that Bloomberg News, owned by Bloomberg, that uh, Jeff Bezos purchased a newspaper, it is on some level their discretion to do it. And therein lies the problem because it shouldn't be in their discretion to do it when you have something like that that has the ability to basically propagandize to the masses with their specific interests. 
or for that matter, protect them from stories that will come in their direction that need to come in their direction because something is basically taking place that the public should know about. Well, that said, putting that part to the side for the moment, the very specific argument right here, town square and having free speech in that space is important to civilization's survival skills. How is he wrong? You have a country that considers itself a representative government or a democracy. Fair enough. In that, those people go out and they elect various leaders to represent their interests. Fair enough. In that particular situation, the legitimacy of the individual in a particular office is conferred through the vote. So yes, you have all sorts of means where you can get politically active. You can protest. You can push your mama to go out and do X or Y. You can send money to a particular person. But at the end of the day, the most lowest common denominator way of going about it is basically in vote. I give you my vote because I have X or Y that I want to see espoused in the larger world. Again, fair enough. This is a schoolboy way of going about elections. How, however, do you choose a person if you don't know what that person is doing? Meaning if you don't have the capability in your political system to understand what is contextually happening in a way where you could say, okay, this guy's doing this. This other person is doing this. I agree with this. I don't agree with that. I uh, quasi this. And then when it comes up for you to get either politically invested, for you to put money behind a particular cause, for something to come up in the larger world where you have a certain point of view and perspective, that basically the information that you're able to get on those people, if it's accurate, contextual, et cetera, gives you the capability and the information necessary to make a choice in your larger outside world. What do you want to support? Who do you want to back? Who do you want to vote for? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How is that done, though? That is not done through magic. That is not done through an act of God. That is done through your capability of news. In the same way that your physical body has all of these other things that it does and, and whatnot, well, technology allows those things to be expanded from the standpoint of information that is put out to the world. For the longest time, you had radio that ended up being a disruptive influence. And this is, again, people talking directly to the person. The person is dealing with this for the first time. He thinks everything that comes through the radio is true. And you have a massive megaphone that can influence. So FDR will have fireside chats. Hitler will have something else where he's basically screaming in people's ear in these kind of high hyperbolic ways. The point that I'm making here is whether it's radio, whether it's TV, or whether it's internet, all of those things are some level of disruptive technologies. And that stuff is dumping information into the public with a government or state that doesn't like the fact that that information is being dumped in a way that it can't necessarily directly entirely control. So what is the response? The response is we need to up the level of propaganda, especially when it's something we're doing with state. And we need to corral how that information is being dispensed. When you only had television, you had very specific, let's say, fixture that information can go through. And worse come to worse, you can always get rid of this person or that person if that person was interceding in regards to putting something out that you didn't like. You can purchase Jesse Ventura and sit him on the sidelines. You can get rid of Donahue when he's saying something you don't particularly like. You can get rid of Ed Schultz when he's saying something you don't particularly like or trying to back Bernie Sanders. Meaning, and from the standpoint of television, if it's corralled, you can get rid of those various people to control the narrative. YouTube, social media is different. And it creates this town crier situation that basically, because it's tech companies, you have less control over those spaces, not more. And if you can create a situation where you're dealing with the various tech companies and everything else, especially from the standpoint of government, and you can put pressure on those things directly, then it doesn't matter that you have a First Amendment. You are doing a basic end around that First Amendment. So if you're eliminating certain information, you're blowing up other information, how does the public ever get a real accurate reading of reality in a way that they can make a choice that is in their best interest or their country's best interest? And doubly so, 
when your country and your state is organizing and petitioning you from the standpoint of war. That's what I'm getting at. Media is dramatically important. And this notion of having a democracy, you basically require this kind of media space for you to have those talks and have those conversations. Even when those conversations are difficult, even when people disagree, it is a basis of that thing. It's a feature. It's not a bug. It's not something that you can eliminate and still call yourself a democracy or representative government. How is it representative if you have various people who are not being represented because you've stopped certain information from basically coming out? And what does it mean in the context of war when you have one side where you have state working in collusion with media lying to the hilt and know they're lying in order to create a context of events? We are the white hats. They're the black hats. We have done nothing wrong. We are angels. They are infinitely culpable and et cetera, and give that to your public and let's run with that. Does that get you closer to war or not? That's what I'm getting at. That's why media is so vitally important. That's why what Musk is saying here, even though I don't necessarily like him as an individual, he is right. And even though I don't like this idea of a billionaire buying Twitter and it being under his control and discretion, something needs to be done from the standpoint of the public that deals with this very specific issue. We are losing any notion of a representative government and a democracy, and it turns into this fascist thing while simultaneously screaming that everything you don't like is either propaganda or coming from somewhere else. Nonsense. That is just a tool by which they don't have to have legitimate conversations and they try to shut down conversation. Elon Musk, in this case, is right. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas, coming to you out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to live in the area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what I'm putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video, not to mention hit that rumble. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy, and we will be taking those calls at 945. So, Tarif, looking at you, buddy. <laughs> looking at you. But going into the story, I kind of want to get into this notion of healthcare. The United States has lost nearly a million people, I think it's more than a million people at this point, from issues of COVID. And when you think about it, we are basically the epicenter around the world. Freedom, light, democracy, city on the hill, million people dead. And nowhere else basically comes close. Now, from the standpoint of a healthcare system, what if we had a different model of healthcare with that number of people have basically passed? And when you're in this kind of situation where you're dealing with, let's say, drug companies, and you have a president basically saying we're going to do a public option, et cetera, et cetera. But when you really get down to it, you have drug companies making massive amounts of money. The American public being, let's say, left in the lurch. And at the end of the day, prescriptions and costs basically going up. The catch becomes, what is going on behind the scenes that basically creates this level of upward pressure in regards to price? Also, what goes on behind the scenes in regards to the pressure that prevents anything from taking place in real, physical matter, reality terms, such as a public option, such as, you know, something that would allow a real-world impact in regards to this notion of healthcare costs and, for that matter, restrained prices. When we were talking in a backroom meeting, our question was, what goes on behind the scenes? And the person who I thought immediately was Joel Siegel. 
Joe Siegel is a former congressional staffer, co-author of H.R. 676, the expanded and improved Medicare for All bill, one of the leading architects for passage of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. He is co-founder and national director of the Justice Action Mobilization Network, J-A-M-N, a national multiracial climate action network. Joel, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? Hey, um, today's Passover for Jewish people across the uh, land and the world. So happy Passover to my Jewish family. Hey, Jamal, you are terrific uh, as a host. I really love listening to you. And all is good. You know, you've, you're touching on an issue that's dear to me and dear to millions of people, many of your listeners. Um, I grew up uninsured. Um, kicked out of hospitals, almost died a few times because I was uninsured, you know, went to Capitol Hill with Bernie Sanders and a thousand uninsured people demanding single payer. That's how I got into Connor's office. Um, yes, I, I was behind the scenes for 13 years at the highest levels of the U.S. Congress and the White House. And I was privy to seeing things that most people would never see at uh so I'm happy to uh, you know, share my perspective. No, that, that is perfect. Because, you know, for me, like I said, my, my objective in doing this job is context. What is your world really like? And get to the truth of it on some level, or, the, or to the degree that you can get to the truth of it. And there's no way to know that unless you're basically talking to people who are behind the scenes and was in those negotiations and in those talks and where they can see how the influence was being maneuvered to the betterment of some and to the worse or detriment of others. And I thought, yeah, he helped pass Obamacare. He would know, especially... Since you wanted Medicare for all, which means Obamacare, by definition, is a compromise in regards to what you actually wanted. And so you could see what the levers of power being used to prevent the better process from going through and, you know, end up with the other process. So let's start at the beginning. When you kind of made this point about saying, yeah, I could see how that stuff was being made. When you were trying to get, let's say, when you guys were trying to get Obamacare passed, and clearly there were some people who were pushing who wanted it to be further, meaning they wanted the public option. What was the influence or what was the, the pressure? being applied to you guys to go for one as opposed to the other? And to be honest, maybe even nothing at all in some respects. Meaning, what was the pressure that was being exerted on you? And could you feel it, see it, identify it, or does it feel like just this, this kind of diffuse pressure of something being against me? What'd you, what was your experience in doing that? Well, be, yeah, being a progressive activist on the Hill, I, I was the leader of the public option movement also. So I, I was leading single-payer Obamacare and public option public option all at the same time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book about what happened so people know, you know, what goes on in Congress. And so, first of all, the single-payer movement was the strongest, you know, uh, contingency within the Congress, that we had more co-sponsors on 676 than the other bill. There was often tension between Conyers and the chairs of the different, energy. you know, it's called Energy and Commerce Committee. And I, I was right there you know, uh, battling with their staffers. At the beginning, they did not want Mr. Conyers to work on universal health care. So I would get yelled and screamed at by staffers from uh, Dingle's office. They were, I remember, white women from the suburbs. <laughs> white women from the suburbs. They used to say, well, why are you doing universal health care? And, you know, look what happened with Hillary Care. And I was like, your district is 80% white. Our district is about 80% black, and the uninsurance rate is really high. And if you have a problem with this, you go talk to Mr. Conyers. But to just get health care on the radar screen, I had to deal with the chief of staff that was against it, 
staff who were against it, um, members of Congress and their staff who were against it. But why? I mean, like, that's the wild part to me. Like, what, what, and, and look, I get that people have um, differences in tenor and everything else. And I'm kind of like you in this. I went through, I was, I was basically had something going on my entire life. Like when I was um, very young, like at four or five years old, there was this thing called Osgood Slaughters that created knee pain. And so it was knee pain going entire life or all the way up to 17, in which case kidney failure. But I guess my point is I had stints also where it's like, okay, out of a job, out of insurance, out of this. And it's like you have this severe medical issue and yet you don't have any insurance. You got to figure out how to make that work. Like that stuff are real issues that basically leave scars and it make you think of that stuff in this kind of real tangible way. So what reason were they against that stuff, which seems to be just a better option if your goal is how do we get healthcare passed? Well, I even had to work with Rahm Emanuel, who, who's a colleague and who's then the chief of staff for Obama. <laughs> Obama. And I, I can, I had an, in, I had, we had interns and people all over at the Hill and the, even the White House. So I had intel for 13 years about what was happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a guerrilla warfare fighter. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the first reason was political, that if we, if we began to go down the road of universal health care, then uh, we would lose the midterms. It was, it was political. And even Rahm Emanuel, who at the end of Obamacare, he, tr- he tried to take it back and do like an expanded Medicaid or CHIP program for kids. And I, I got a million phone calls and emails uh, into the White House, and, and I brought in Ed Schultz. He was my brother, by the way, Ed Schultz, and I got Ed to really see him work. Yeah, I was very close to him, and he and I kind of conspired together to out the people who were against the Affordable Care Act, and, and we were successful at it, at me and him, and he's my brother. And uh, I worked with Dolores Huerta to flip about 10 members of Congress who were no's and we got them into yeses. So up until literally, you know, 24 hours before the bill's passage, Dolores and I were flipping all these members of Congress who were no votes. And, and uh, so no one really knows about this history. bill barely got passed. And the biggest thing was, uh, A, the Democrats will lose the Congress just like they did in the House when Hillary Carroll failed. Uh, the other was they used to tell me the staff used to say, "Can't you get health care in the emergency room? Don't we already have universal health care?" And, I, and I'd, I'd say, "Well, I sleep on a, a CPAP machine, which costs four thousand dollars, and I can't get that in the emergency room." That was that is what they they thought we already had universal health care. So what I did is I organized a few hundred congressional briefings. I wrote a movie sicko with Michael Moore to really show that there were millions of uninsured people and people were dying. We even had, we had TV commercials, by the way, about, you know, people dying of cancer because they were uninsured. You know, I worked with Ed Schultz to do a bunch of shows on MSNBC. And, um, but that was it. It was like, there's no problem. Everyone has healthcare, right? (laughs) So they really was that blissfully out. You know, it's funny. There's an article that came out recently for Diane Feinstein, basically saying she's not mentally there. And oftentimes when we're talking about the various people, it's like, God, why are these people so tone deaf? And sometimes it's an age thing where they're like, like either out of their class, where they're just, you know, it's, it's like they don't, or, the most people in this country don't have $600 in a bank. Nancy Pelosi says like $100 million. How on earth is she going to get it? And not just that, from the standpoint of age, from the standpoint of temperament, like all of that stuff is just radically different in tone deaf. And so oftentimes we think, Okay, those people are being bribed. Those people are, are corrupt, et cetera. 
in this case, you really do believe that they were just out of it, like out to lunch. Like they really did believe that universal health care was the same thing as going to the emergency room and getting a bill that you can't afford to pay for. Yes, that, that's what they believed. And as we started our campaign to change that, that what I call intellectual confusion, <laughs> you know, uh, people are like, oh, okay, we got a problem. But, but I screened Sicko on the Hill and, and in D.C. That was a very important development. You know, I went to Michael Moore with this idea of, can we you know, uh, do a movie on the uninsured here and then go to Europe and show what it's like to have universal health care? And, and he, he just did a masterpiece, this movie, Sicko. I hope everybody watches it. And it's a phenomenal movie. It, it's, it's, it is one of the most angering movies. Like, I, I got to be honest. Sitting here talking to you now is making me angry. It's, it's triggering something. Because part of me feels like I, I've been to Europe. And, and you're, I remember I was in Israel um, once, and I was running out of pain meds. And it was like, all right, I got to find a doctor. I forgot to find a doctor. Found a doctor to do it without any prescription or without, not prescription, without any insurance. It's cheaper there. And I remember asking a doctor, he was like, oh, yeah, all Americans, you know, they're always surprised when they realize, you know, how much we pay. But the same thing was true in Europe. If you're in, let's say, Britain, if you're in France, if you're in any of these countries, I used to have to get treatment in any country that I would go in. Because, you know, it's like you can go a certain distance without having these treatments and everything else to clean your blood. But beyond a certain point, you're pushing your luck. And so in some countries, you have to get treatment. So I've been France, Ecuador, Egypt, et cetera, all around the world getting treatments. All of those countries where you had something like universal medicine, they are shocked that America is the way it is. They were like, I can't believe that this is the way you guys do. We don't get it. We don't understand why you guys do it that way. And they would even be the situation like if you were in Europe and you decided to go to another country, they would pay for your treatments in that other country because that's just considered healthcare for them. It's astonishing, like the difference. And the fact that this is what we have and this is what we're stuck with, where people are persistently vulnerable. Persistently so. It's just aggravating. Well, I mean, under the Congressional Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, I have $96,000 in co-pays. Are you serious? Yeah, so I had one bill for 87000 for a procedure, and, and Blue Cross said, well, I'm not, we're not going to pay for it. <laughs> so what I tried to do, I did, I did a big hearing with Elizabeth Warren uh, at the Judiciary Committee, and we, we hailed in you know, all these insurance executives, and we, I, uh, Warren had done a report at Harvard on medical bankruptcies. And I wanted to you know, get that on C-SPAN and, and you know, ask these insurance companies, like, why are you bankrupting people? You know, at, uh, and we, we, it, was, it was a lot of fun just to see them you know, get red-faced and sweating and all that. But at the, the end of the day, we need Medicare for all. I wrote that bill with 40 of the most incredible, most brilliant doctors. It took us uh, six months to write. Um, I did write the, the, the final bill, but without these brilliant doctors from Physicians for a National Health Program, I, I could have never written that bill. Uh, 676 was Conyers' vision. He wanted a single-payer federal bill. So what I did was I studied every healthcare system in the world. I, I thought Canada was probably the best. Sweden and Norway have great systems, too, but I thought Canada was the best in terms of fitting our model. And then I, I, I took Medicare, which I am an expert on, and I had Medicare deliver the Canadian single-payer system. But if I, if I was too obvious about that, then people would have freaked out, you know, Canada waiting lines. So I was like, no, we're just going to expand and improve Medicare to everybody. And it, it, you know, I brought in probably 40 national organizations and I, I did not think it would stand the test of time. 
after Obamacare, I just found out that 40 million people have been covered under the Affordable Care Act. And, and I will tell you this, um, my chief of staff was a, was a right-winger, Republican. Really? It's my second one. Oh, yeah. And she opposed the single-payer bill. She said, your single-payer bill is going to take away my health care. It is not. Congress. And my health care is the best in the world. And I said, no, I want everybody, Mr. Conyers, your boss, wants every person to have the same quality that you have. That's when I knew that there was going to be trouble for me in that office. And it was, it was a battle royale for like, it was like Muhammad Ali versus. <laughs> really? And what's with that crab mentality stuff? Like, like, cause sometimes workers would do it. It's like, this person wants $15 an hour for working at McDonald's. And then you get a secretary saying, well, I don't get 15. Why should they get it? And it's like, is it possible that you're also not getting paid <laughs> adequately? And the healthcare thing. Like, she's like, oh, they're going to take away my health care. Is it possible that you just get, you know, everybody have decent max health care on some level? Like, that just seemed to, to not function. Also, I'm kind of curious, from your standpoint, who was your opposition in that? Because there had to be people that were like, so like drug companies. For example, when Obama was pushing through the Affordable Care Act, one of the reasons that he left certain things out was because he didn't necessarily want to bring up the ire of drug companies and have those companies and healthcare facilities and all those things basically working against them. Tell me if I'm wrong on that. Well, that's, that's correct. So the two constituencies that Obama was trying to placate were the drug companies uh, and the insurance companies. So the sweetener was, hey, you're going to have more clients, you private insurance companies. We're going to subsidize you know, your private insurance and, and you're going to become our enemy. No, you'll become our friend and our enemy. Then with the drug companies, they didn't really have anything in the bill where you could do, you know, uh, mandatory negotiations with the drug companies. The, um, I, I had to really study on the, about the drug companies when I was with Ms. Conner's office. So I'll just tell you, you know, what I learned. So Aggregate farmers aggregate the American division is 1.3 trillion a year. That's about what single payer would cost based on the economist calculation. Oh, right, right. What they yeah, what they make in profits could pay for a single payer system. Um, that's number one. Number two, between 2000 and 2018, the global um, pharma profits was around 226 trillion. Oh, wow. Now, I just want you to think about this. So, right, to bring a drug to the market costs a billion dollars. And what they do, it's very, very interesting, is they, they farm out, no pun intended, the research to universities. Most of it is done through universities or government-funded you know, entities. Then, then what they do is it, you know, it costs about a billion dollars to bring a drug to market but then the real cost of a drug is not the research. That's being you know, done by federally subsidized entities. It's the advertisement. Marketing. TV. It's the, all right. It's the TV advertisements. What we have to do if we're going to get drug prices down, there's only two routes. One route is you go single payer, and then you have you know, uh, 330-plus million people negotiating with pharma, and their only market would be the American people, so we could control their drug prices. That's number one. Number two, not actually three ways. The second would be being able to import drugs from Canada or other European countries, which is what Bernie Sanders kept trying to do. We could never get that bill you know, to get passed. That seems so indirect. I mean, because if you remember, Trump was trying to do something weird around that. Because Trump's thing was, 
okay, we'll import drugs from socialist countries. And it's like, dude, if you're you're importing drugs from socialist countries, you're basically getting a lower price because they're a socialist country and they have a single pair. You're you're just passing the buck in order to get it done and you don't want to own it. It was just very weird stuff. But that just seems so indirect. I mean, even I get it. Really a point that no one's ever made. You're the first person that made that point, that you're getting cheaper drugs from countries with a single-payer right. model. And then the other, the other thing is the federal government, through the interstate, uh, it's, it's the interstate uh, commerce clause in the, in the, in the, you know, in the Constitution. So I, it's, I, under the interstate commerce clause, you, the, you can regulate any kind of uh, federal, in any business that goes, you know, that goes to different states, you can regulate that. So if the federal government right now wanted to regulate the cost of the drug company's drugs, they could pass the bill tomorrow. I mean, right, you, you can regulate the cost of anything if you want, if you're the government. The pharma doesn't have say-so over the Congress or the White House, but uh, – I, they threw parties like I have never seen before. They were very lavish. Um, you would go downstairs at six o'clock after work was over, and every major, you know, uh, in every building that had these, you know, judiciary committee rooms, or whatever, and then pharma would have their, you know, duck and lobster tails and <laughs> crab claws, and, and just seducing everybody. And they give an enormous amount of money to both parties. Which you know, which which places pressure on the member of Congress not to do anything, and then you got staffers who are the what John Kev Garbrook calls the comfortable class, who believe in the free market and private enterprise, and if you have to pay a thousand dollars, you know, a week for insulin, then that's fine because they were aligned with uh, the capitalist class ideologically. That, in other words, they. Even even in some of the progressive offices, they were okay. They were true believers. They were making profits. They didn't bother them at all because they weren't the ones like my mother or millions of grandmothers across the country who have to divide a pill and then eat cat food to pay their rent because they can't afford the medication. And it, it's like, it's beyond my comprehension, but without a movement, and you, know, you can't change this. And unfortunately, we don't have the leaders yet to... To make that case, I I tried my best for those thirteen years. That's so disturbingly sad. I mean, to but to your point, and yes, I find it disturbingly sad. However, Obamacare passed, and for what all of for whatever vagaries that are in Obamacare, it does crack the consciousness of the nation. Because if you remember before Obamacare passed, the idea of having a single payer healthcare system was like, oh no, that's an anomaly. You can't have that. That's impossible, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, this is America. That doesn't work in America. And then you get Obama passing this kind of tepid healthcare thing that Republicans basically said is single payer. It's a government takeover. We're going to have um, um, trials, <laughs> like death panels and all this other stuff. But they basically screamed that the thing was a government healthcare um, takeover for so long that the American public was like, okay, fair enough. Well, at the point where Sanders comes out and says, well, Medicare for all, well, the public is like 70% on it. And this is like a situation where beforehand, it wasn't even on the table as a possible debate. So it's almost like the public has come around to it. And I'm wondering if Obamacare was a stepping stone to getting the public into the mindset of, okay, this seems to be okay. The world didn't fall apart. Maybe this other thing is all right also. Like within varying degrees, of course. I mean, do you attribute the Affordable Care Act? Meaning, I get you didn't get exactly what you wanted. But do you attribute it to setting a context to the public 
that would be more in line to trying to get you there as opposed to the way you were before? I really appreciate your, your political acumen. You, you completely get it. Um, I became the enemy of the single pair left for many years because of Obamacare. But um, no, my thinking was, let's get, let's pass this because if millions of people can get insurance, they won't die. Minority health disparities will be dramatically reduced. Um, unfortunately, 13 states or whatever didn't want to pass uh, the Medicaid expansion, and the, the the left didn't do it, anything about that. But yeah, I, I told uh, the single payer movement, the leaders, and I come from that movement that if we can get people used to the idea of government involvement in providing health insurance, then we could move forward on single payer. But if we didn't open that door, it would have been closed forever. After the Affordable Care Act was passed, I can tell you, if we hadn't have passed it, there was so much opposition to even working on the bill, it would have never, ever done that again because we weren't going to have an African-American president who came from, you know, uh, I would say a Mandela you know, tradition or King tradition. So I was in meetings for, with Obama's staff, and the, there were Democrats, a lot of the Democrats were pressuring Obama not to do universal health care, and he didn't care because he lost his, his mother, I think, was, was trying to pay all these medical bills. She couldn't pay because the insurance company sucks. So Obama stuck to his guns. Now, Obama initially started off as a single-payer supporter. Yeah, you know, for years. They were able to water him down, basically. Well, he just, I mean, I think he realized, all right, let's see if we can pass. And I was in meetings with, like I'm telling you, the senior staffers who came to my single-payer briefings and said, we're for single-payer, but we can't pass it. Let's pass something that, you know, we can get through. And I, re- I remember Rahm Emanuel told me that, you know, personally. And, um, but, the, but it was, it was actually... You know, the favorite uh, person on, uh, that your viewers love to hear is Pelosi was the one who threw down on Obama. And uh, when she found out that Obama was thinking about withdrawing the Affordable Care Act, she just, she went into a rage. Did she? Not, yes, yeah, she did. It wasn't like she didn't start yelling or screaming, but she got very angry because uh, Pelosi was probably one of our most important supporters uh-huh. of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, she said, what are you going to do, Barack? introduced a little inky-winky bill, and it was her and Michelle Obama, by the way, it was strong women who got, you know, who really kept Obama from, you know, listening to the, the advice of, you know, the, the corporate Democrats. So Pelosi and I, I saw her right after we passed the bill. I was up on the Capitol. I was getting ready to introduce, I can't remember, it was a jobs for all, I can't remember, whatever progressive bill I was trying to introduce. So she stopped me and she grabbed my hands and we looked at each other and I said, I cannot believe that, you know, that we did this. And I know what you did in the white house with Barack Obama. I want to thank you for your strength. And she said, no, I want to thank you for all your years of advocacy. And we, we both cried. And then I saw Henry Waxman, who had been the chair of energy commerce in the elevator. And I said, you know, the affordable care act is going to have a lot of flaws because there's going to be excessive co-pays. And he smiled at me. I said, you know, we need single payer. That's the only answer. He said, he said, we'll get to that later. But you know, I, I, was, I was talking single pair until the end. But I feel really good about that accomplishment. And so, so is it one of those things where the thought is kind of like the European Union, where there's so many defects and flaws that basically in order to fix it. I mean, but that's risky, though. That would be risky. Because it's like if there's a defect and a flaw, the Republicans are going to, meaning your propensity to try to say, hey, 
I know you guys like this policy. We need to fix it in order to make it better. It's almost equal to Republicans if they were in power saying, okay, this isn't working. We need to do X, Y, Z and finding ways to make it worse in order to try to get rid of it. For Kind of like what they did with the um, payments where or what they did with, um, oh, it was something that they were doing behind the scenes that was making it that much more difficult for the thing to work in the proper way that it was supposed to work. Um, but, but either way, so are you, man, I, I, this is a fascinating conversation, Joe. Like you just, the stuff that you've been involved in is just astonishingly interesting. Especially being in something that historic. Like, look, people have all sorts of issues with Obamacare, right? But I do believe that it moves the ball forward in a way where more people, millions more, tens of millions more, get coverage in a way that they didn't necessarily get before. And so, you know, no, it's not perfect. Yes, it's better than nothing. It's that type of dynamic going on with this hope that you can kind of still move it even further. You cannot let the perfect be the enemy. The good. Let, let me tell you something. When I was uninsured, and, and I was homeless for almost four years, because I was uh, disabled at the time, and I, I don't have a father. My mother's very, you know, at the time was very poor, and you know, just because I have a law degree and went, and you know, at Chapel Hill and worked in Congress, that that doesn't explain the totality of my my the arc of my life. Of course not. My life was. I went through some very very hard times due to financial situations and due to my health. But because I didn't have any insurance, I had a pre-existing condition called sleep apnea at the time. I could not get treated in Charlotte, and I, I, I was going to die from this. Uh, uh, I quit breathing in my sleep 108 times an hour. So I had to move to Atlanta, Georgia, to go. There was a Jewish uh, neurologist who agreed to treat me for free. And all those memories that I had of just being oppressed and, and crying you know, every day, like, how the hell am I going to you know, figure out a way to get through all this? It was because I didn't have an insurance card. And I remember I did civil disobedience at a hospital because they wouldn't give me a mask because my mask broke uh, from my machine. And they had police who carded, they, they, they arrested me and carded me and threw me out of the hospital. But I, I mean, I, those memories weren't with me. And, and then my mother trying to pay all my bills you know, growing up. And, and every day I came to work, I thought about the 40 million people who were just like me. And, and those who had already died, they, a lot of people were dying each year because they didn't have health insurance. And as much as I can't stand private insurance, I knew that the best way to save lives and, you know, and, and, and get people some kind of quality of health care would be to pass something where they got an insurance card, whether it was Medicare or Blue Cross Blue Shield. I didn't care. I just knew that the majority of the people who worked in Congress did not have my experience. Basically, reach for the... Reach for the star if you can't grab the moon. All intents and purposes. No, dude. I, look, your experiences, um, this is one of those situations where the experiences themselves drive the person. And even though those things are difficult, even though those things are um, dark at times with all sorts of issues of humiliation, all sorts of issues of power, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, what it ended up with was a point of view that oriented you to get this done with a fire behind you, with the personal experience in order to kind of see that through. So it's like, yeah, it's dark. No, it's not easy. But yeah, there's a larger consequence of 40 million people getting it as a result of the difficulty you went through. I, I appreciate that. And the book I'm writing is I'm explaining all the leaders across the country that nobody knows about who worked 24-7 to get the bill passed. Most of us were single-payer activists, by the way. Um, with the public option, what happened was there were two members of the Progressive Caucus's staff that kept blocking me 
<laughs> to get public option, you know, as a priority because they felt like it wasn't personal. They felt like the public option would never pass because Senator Lieberman, uh, you know, the, the senator from Aetna. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> now, so over Christmas, I, I, I had 70 organizations fly in from across the country, and we met in Mr. Conyers' Judiciary Committee room, and I plotted out a strategy on the public option. I had several members of the Progressive Caucus who were, like, advocating for it, and then two members who will remain nameless, um, their staff, you know, we got into a, it was a boxing match. <laughs> and whenever I would uh, look at what we were supposed to agree on as a Progressive Caucus, which was a public option, a Medicare-like public option, I would notice it was deleted from the agenda. So I would pass notes to Barbara Lee and all these other members of Congress telling them to bring up the public option. And, uh, but, you know, we tried and we failed. But, you know, uh, what, what I'm seeing now, though, is we still have millions of people who are uninsured. We still have millions of people who are underinsured, like myself, who fear going to a doctor because they'll have a copay they can't pay, so their teeth fall out and they die of, you know, diabetes. So we are, a, you know, this is a barbaric healthcare system that must be changed, and I got to give plaudits to Sanders and all those activists across the country who are keeping the dream alive. Medicare for all, not socialism, of course. It's privately delivered, publicly financed healthcare. What the right wing does, they try to spin it to say it's a government takeover. It is not a government takeover. It's an expansion of an existing system called Medicare without any co-pays ever again and no bills, no private insurance. But they twisted, and, you know, but the, the Medicare for All movement has to do a better job explaining what it really is, not what people want us to think it is through their propaganda. Agreed. And, you know, what, government takeover is what I would want. <laughs> That's not Medicare for All, right? It's like, yeah, I, I'll settle for Medicare for All. But from the standpoint of um, certain industries that I consider vital industries and stuff like that, healthcare being one of them, yeah, I don't believe private enterprise should have their hands on things that are vital to state um, function and so forth. Healthcare is one of them. Healthcare system adequately funded is one of the best systems in the world, by the way. Agreed. Thousand percent agreed. Great system, the British system. Yeah. Joel, thank you, my man. I appreciate this conversation. This was fascinating to me. Like just to know what's going on behind the scenes as this stuff was being created and everything else. Absolutely appreciate the conversation. I went to war. I went to war for 13 years, man. And I was not, I was kind of, I didn't have much help, but I, I knew that all those millions of people were counting on people like myself and other members of Congress and some of the other staffers from Kucinich and Sanders who were part of the, and Barbara Lee and Sheila Jackson Lee. But I, but it was basically, uh, it was a war. And and their casualties and more, but we won, you know. We won the war. Yeah. No, we we won the battle. We didn't win the war. We won that battle, but we got a long way to go. But you can, you can make a change, but you have to be, you have to know that if you go into the system, if you're going to go into government as a progressive activist on the left, you will be met with derision. You'll be met with people who are shooting bullets at you and bows and arrows. And I didn't I didn't care. Because Conyers was protecting me, actually Pelosi did too in the Black Caucus, and you know it can be done. But I have to say that the Squad and all these other members of Congress, they're going to have to go way more to the left, bringing the people around legislation because the time is. You know, I mean, there's no reason why we can't get a single payer bill passed, but you can't do that without leadership from the Congress and the outside. But thank you very much for giving me a chance to talk about what I haven't talked about yet to anybody. No, man, that, that this is a great story. Like, you have no idea how much I'm appreciative of that. 
Um, but the voice you guys were listening to is Joe Siegel. He's a former congressional staffer, co-author of H.R. 676, the Expanded and Improved Medicare for All bill, and one of the leading architects for passage of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. He is co-founder and national director of Justice Action Mobilization Network, JAM, a nationwide multiracial climate action network. And we're going to go straight to callers, Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? Thank you for taking my call, Jamal. Uh, first, like I say, free Julian Science. I have uh, four quick comments. My first comment is this. Um, Bill H.R. Uh, 7311, Representative Gregory Meeks from New York is pushing a bill which will go after African diplomats for doing business with the Russians and also African nations for um, doing business with the Russians or staying neutral on the Ukraine-Russia thing. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. I mean, what are they going to do? Sanction China, India, all of the African nations, all of the nations in the South, um, in, in the U.S.? I mean, at a certain point, look, when the U.K. went into, um, you had this kind of, Chalmers Johnson, he talks about it, I think, even blowback, and there's another book that he had. But he talks about this moment of almost like a canary in the coal mine where some a country does something that is so over the top in relation to its capability to do it. And oftentimes, that's a self-conception that they just can't live up to, that he creates a change. It's like it, you're, you're going beyond what the position carries. Look, I think on some level, these sanctions and everything else, I mean, we're, it sounds like we're hitting that stuff. I mean, what are your thoughts, Tariq? I lost frame of thought, you know, because I was trying to think of the, the other comments I had. You know, I mean, as we keep on pushing forward, I mean, things like this will be exposed and these representatives will be kicked out of office by being voted out voting the good representatives. But okay, my second comment, Elon Musk thing, but the Elon Musk thing is a game changer. This is how serious it is. If he if they block him, him and the other shareholders with that's with Twitter can sue the other shareholders for blocking him because the the the, the, the main part of being a shareholder is to make money. Okay, it's not about emotion. So and also if they he could wreck the company by selling off his shares, dropping down the price, then come back later and buying it. Then once he get on, just say if he um buy it, just outright buy it, they have rumors circulating that Twitter have thirty to forty percent of these profiles might be false. So that might be fraudulent on their port where in a must can take them to court. Because if they're saying they got a billion people, but actually they got 700 million, then, you know, that's a, that's a case against them. Maybe. I mean, like, they may be sock puppet accounts and stuff like that. I mean, that, that's a, like, they can, okay, I understand what you mean. What's your other point? My third point, I got another point after this. Kim.com was talking about the Hunter Biden laptop, the, the hard drives and all that. The, um, was, um, they got different countries that have it. And next week is going to come out about child point of uh, graphic that's on there. I mean, I, I got to see that first. I got to see that first. That's just a rumor. I mean, we've had, because all of these people have had the laptops for a while that would have came up. Yeah, but that's another thing he said, that all these people that had the laptop or got a hold of the information, it should have been came out with it. So next week, you, it, all, he's saying all hell. Gonna, we get to see it. We'll see. My last comment is dealing with Russia. I read two reports that Russia already have, supposed to already have NATO military personnel already. That's Again, there's no way to know that, Tariq. 
I mean, that, that's something that has to be shown. That's something that is just rumored. They're going to be coming. They're going to come when the trial come out in June. Okay. Supposedly, they're going to march them out so they can tell their story, the, um, the NATO mercenaries and troops. No, totally understand. Tarif, thank you very much, my man. We have David, South Carolina. David, you got about one minute. Okay, yeah. Uh, I was just calling. Good morning, first of all. How are you? Hope you're having a good day. I was just calling to say how they definitely, I mean, we need universal health care in this country. We do. Um, I mean, Obamacare, ACA, whatever you want to call it. it I mean, like like uh, the caller or like the... It's radically inadequate. Yeah. It, it, I mean, people, even with people, it's still prohibitively expensive for so many people. Agreed. Agreed. It, it's just crazy. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, that gives you an idea of how bad it was before even that, right? <laughs> like it's like the the fix is still insufficient, like you know grotesquely so. Um, David, thank you, my man. Louise, Virginia, what's going on, Louise? Well, I know I don't have much time. You're doing a fantastic job. You can handle any anything. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You you got about a minute, so you have time. Oh, I do. Good. Okay. Uh, yes, yes. I admire your reaction to, to this latest crisis. Um, <clears throat> one, it's called Good Friday because today Jesus Christ, supposedly the Son of God, was crucified at noon, uh, supposedly to relieve mankind of the burden of his sins. So th- that's why it's called Good Friday. Oh, I know. I was teasing when I was, I, I know. I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> Please go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, okay. My next comment is. We have to be very careful about holding up the European health system as an ideal because, at least in the case of France, I know it has been and is being deliberately undermined by the neoliberals. It's not what it used to be one bit. Same thing with the UK. Louise, thank you for that. Guys, I want to thank all of you for joining me today. I want to thank the engineer, producer. I want to thank all of you. My name is Jamal Thomas. Fault lines. Jamal Thomas. You guys have a phenomenal day. See you next tomorrow. Well, on Monday. Bye-bye. Fault lines.